You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Hey everybody, Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, if you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. Ah! Welcome to It Could Happen Here, a show about things falling apart and also putting things back together. Today, we have an episode about, well, it's th- this, is, this is kind of a big one, folks. So everyone who listens to the show regularly will know that there have been a rash of attacks by the far right on drag queen story hours and kind of similar events to that. Events that are LGBT friendly events that also involve children have been regularly attacked all over the United States. Uh, At the same time, there have been escalating attacks by right-wingers, often the very same people, on uh, reproductive health care, resources, clinics, that sort of thing. Um, This is happening all over the country, but one place where things have been particularly aggressive as of late is in New York, um, New York City. And today we're going to be speaking with uh, a couple of different people who live in New York who have been present at some of these actions and who want to talk about what's been going on with the far right and the attempts to defend these people in these organizations from uh, from right-wing aggression. So I want to introduce uh, Talia. Uh, now, Talia, you are known to our audience. You've been on this show and some of our other shows a couple of times in the past. Uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And hello to everyone who still remembers what I sound like. <laughs> and do you want to you want to 
drop your uh, your your Twitter and stuff up at the top here too, because you do a lot of on the ground reporting at different times in in the city on, sure. on events. Uh, it's pretty simple. It's Talia OTG, as in mm-hmm. on the ground. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's where I do my uh, reporting on events, uh, analysis, all that dumb shit. And then uh, our other guests are two New Yorkers. Sorry, N- New York people. Um, <laughs> <laughs> who are both anti-fascist activists who have been present in the streets for a number of these recent events. Uh, I'd like to introduce uh, Tom and Barry. Do we want to go around and, and do pronouns real quick here? Um, I'm, I'm he, him. Yeah, sure. I'm uh, she or they. Uh, this is Tom. I'm he, him. And I'm she, her. Awesome. All right. Well, that is uh, so I, I guess I'd like to kind of start and and hand it over to, to Talia if she wants to give kind of an overview of how all of this has 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 gone down. But basically, we've seen I mean, the thing that surprised me most in the coverage that I have watched from a distance is how aggressive and large some of the right wing uh, presence has been at like um, reproductive health clinics in, in New York City. I was kind of surprised to see that in New York. Yeah, so there's a group in New York called NYC for Abortion Rights, and they host once monthly clinic defenses at the Planned Parenthood on Bleecker in Lower Manhattan. Um, and they do that because there is a church nearby the um, Basilica of Old St. Pat's that hosts a, a, a coalition of anti-abortion uh, religious zealot groups. They um, organize these large, they're usually processions to the Planned Parenthood where they pray outside, they throw holy water on the building, they attempt to hand out um, propaganda and literature and intimidate people who are coming into the clinic for necessary um, health services. Um, and these same individuals have been seen attending anti-vax rallies. The, the man who leads the procession to the Planned Parenthood. Um, his name is Christopher Monsinski. He's also known as Fidelis. And he has invaded clinics in White Plains, New York, in, I think, um, East Hempstead. Um, he has been trying to revive Red Rose Rescue, which um, people who are familiar with the fight for reproductive rights are probably aware that that is the primary group that invades clinics and tries to harass patients, um, threatens uh, doctors and care workers and all, all sorts of things. The, the main people who lead Red Rose are either in jail or uh, have died, thankfully. Um, and he's trying to revive that here in New York. Um, and he has attended um, rallies organized by far-right conspiracists, anti-vax conspiracists um and it's like you know he he went to dc for um the march for life and then he stuck around for the um the <laughs> my body my choice anti-vax rally it was it's it's very it's it's very contradictory but we see these same people because they're aligning on um conservatism on crystal fascism and we're, we're seeing them pop up um in shared spaces pretty frequently in New York in ways that I think are more transparent or like more easy to clock here, even if there is like a larger density of them that do mobilize to these specific things like clinic harassments. Yeah, that's, um, that's a really interesting point. And that's also 
what we've seen a lot in the Pacific Northwest. Um, you know, we just had uh, an attempt did rally at a, a drag queen story hour in Eugene, and it was a lot of the same old crowd who used to rally in Portland before they got scared off of Portland. Now, I'm wondering kind of what, how would you characterize the response of the police to these events and how they kind of have, have, have treated the right wing at these? Well, it is about as uh, cliche as cliche comes because every single time um, when I've covered clinic defenses specifically, uh, the police are helping move the procession along and threatening uh, clinic defenders with arrest on the basis that they're blocking the roadway. Um, they are they they essentially work as like secondary security. Um, sometimes they will split off from the other police and be like pushing and shoving clinic defenders on their own in a way that doesn't make any sort of strategic sense. But it's like they're getting enjoyment from doing that. Um, it's, it's the same story over and over again. You know, we see it in, in San Diego, uh, when anti-fascists were mobilizing against, uh, like Trump supporters that were being very violent, the Trump supporters were doing the violence and it was the police that were attacking the anti-fascists trying to fight against, like trying to defend themselves against the far right. Um, and we saw the same thing at Penn state just the other night. Yeah, Um, we did. The there was a, a a gaggle of like Proud Boys or or I think Tess Owen referred to them as fascists in all black who were uh, macing the crowd and they um, they you know didn't do anything. The police escorted. There was a, an incident where a Proud Boy was assaulting or like somehow there was a fight that happened with a demonstrator and a Proud Boy. And the demonstrator, the police threw the demonstrator on the ground and then escorted the Proud Boy into the building where Gavin McInnes and um, Alex Stein were supposed to put on a a very bad comedy show that didn't end up happening. Lead him back to his friends. Jesus Christ. Yeah. I I asked that question and I know everybody like listening and I know all of you knew like what the answer was going to be. I feel like you still have to like ask it. Um, I am curious, the NYPD has a, a a kind of manpower, access to manpower and access to surveillance equipment that in my experience outdoes most nations uh, I've been in. And I'm interested particularly, uh, and everyone's responses are welcome, but particularly what, what Tom and Barry might have to say about what sort of roadblocks that provides towards organizing responses to these events and kind of how activists have had to adapt to that. Uh, this is Tom here. I mean, I will say it's very clear that the NYPD constantly monitors any sort of online space whatsoever. And I think most people know to organize, you know, in person or on signal with a small group of their friends rather than um, trying to get a large group of people to come to a thing publicly on the Internet. Because anytime that happens, it's like there's instantly, you know, that much larger of a police presence. You get dozens and dozens of uh, what's called the SRG, the Strategic Response Group, which I think Talia can maybe speak on that a little more. But they're basically the uh, hats and bats that come bust up protests. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, and I would also say that uh, because of the sheer volume of events, that these exact same group of, of people who are now attacking um, drag story hours and clinics, um, because we know this group already, and they were having almost daily anti-vax rallies, which objectively is 
uh, stopped kind of being a thing to even consider, try to mobilize the counter protest for. Um, so I think there is kind of a large disconnect right now, which whether by design or accidentally, where I think a lot of people feel like um, people who might attend a counter protest, that is, might feel like, oh, no, it's just those same idiots up to their nonsense again. You know, that, that's we don't worry about that. Like, tell me if it's the Proud Boys coming and then we'll mobilize to counter protest. Um, yeah. So I, I honestly feel that it's sort of the mental kind of the mental associations that we have with these familiar faces. Um, I mean, despite the fact that it's been kind of obviously long observed that the anti-vax stuff is a direct pipeline and radicalization um, platform for these more extremist and crypto fascist and transphobic actions. Now, uh, people still can't really detach that. Uh, uh, no, this is actually serious now. So, um, but yeah, I agree with what Tom said that it's uh, a matter of not dropping it. I'm sorry. I mean, that, that gets to another kind of advantage these folks have, which is because of how much additional state repression y'all are dealing with, the kind of personal cost of attending these events and countering the right is higher, both in terms of potential risk and just kind of in terms of the trauma incurred. I know from personal experience, I mean, I haven't been out in the street in quite a while, about a year at this point, And I know a lot of other people who are in the same place because it just kind of, you know, you can't only take so much as an individual. What are some ways in which y'all as a community try to cope with burnouts so that you can continue to meet the pace at which the right is doing this stuff? I mean, I think it's really relying on other people, like the same one, two or three or four or five people can't keep doing everything. As yeah. soon as people start to get exhausted, I think then it's time to, you know, take a step back, take a week off, take three weeks off. Like there have to be other people that are ready to step up, um, you know, throughout your community, but throughout everywhere. Yeah. And definitely, I think there's going to be more of a need to emphasize that this requires everyday anti-fascists. I think in New York City, especially, we kind of fell into a trap where any kind of public call to counter was very, I mean, militant in style and wording, you know, uh, very clear that it's a cab, wear black, be water, things like that. And the kinds of people that are just community members that we actually do need to also show up and tell the fascists that they're not welcome in their neighborhoods either, they're not going to respond to something like that for a multitude of reasons. And uh, what can you say about sort of the numbers that you're seeing kind of on, on both sides on the ground here? What's like a normal action looking like in terms of that? Um, I mean, you know, just from reporting and, and keeping tabs on different types of protests in New York City, we have a lot of uh, nonprofits and more established type groups that organize larger events. Um, and those are typically just marches for visibility and awareness. Um, and when it comes to a counter or some sort of direct action, like mutual aid, for example, um, we see much smaller numbers, but those numbers that, I mean, that I see at least is that these are people who've built community and um, communicate together as opposed to seeing a flyer and showing up just for that one day. These are people who consistently are engaging with one another and with that space. So like I, I mentioned mutual aid, we have um, Washington Square Park Mutual Aid, which meets every Friday. And the core group that um, sets it up and distributes and everything is relatively small. But the people who have shown up to support in some capacity 
in the past two years that it has been active, um, they all know each other. And that doesn't mean that, you know, they're like necessarily like going to birthday parties together or, um, you know, uh, donating kidneys to one another or something like that. It's not necessarily like best friend groups, but it's people who have built a sort of neighborhood in this ideology and in this space, in this time. I would also say like these particular events have kind of brought in like a different group of people. It's not like the same crews of people that were doing other things because there's more kind of liberal people getting involved that are like coming to these drag string court, drag queen story hour, like defenses to, you know, be joyful and hold up signs and sing and like welcome people into the library. So that's also made it more easy to keep these going because we've kind of got a larger revolving door of people rather than, you know, smaller groups. Yeah, that makes sense as like particularly as a way to not burn people out, you know. I'm curious as to what have you seen as far like one of the major tactics anti-fascists always use is identification um and exposing people who are t- attending these events rallying with fascist organizations. Have you noticed a difference on how well this works for the people who are showing up to protest at like drag queen story hour events versus um, the people showing up at, at reproductive health care clinics at Planned Parenthoods and such? Because it kind of strikes me that one of those is more mainstream maybe than the other, although perhaps I'm being kind of optimistic in that. But I'm wondering, does that uh, uh, does it appear to be more effective against kind of at, at one kind of rally than it is in another kind, if that makes any sense. So a lot of the people who are engaging in the clinic harassments are known among their networks. And yeah. because their goal is to present a sort of legitimizing face for opposing abortion, um, they don't typically show up to things that are a little bit more volatile. But we have seen that with so it as it happens that this the the people who are harassing drag story hour for the most part have been a part of one specific core group of people that I've been monitoring and reporting on for the past year. So I know all of their names, which has pigeonholed them into what they can and can't do. We had um, there's there's this far right propagandist Orin Levy, his brother was at a, uh, he was trying to harass a drag story hour at the Andrew Heiskell Library for the Blind. And that was an event put on for neurodivergent children. And he was attempting to harass that. He ended up pepper spraying two people. And because he is known, his name is out there, his face is known, and he is identifiable across all social media networks, it was very easy for those people to be able to file complaints against him. That's good. Yeah. And another thing, too, is that because this one group does all of these harassments together, they started out doing anti-vax stuff where they were going and harassing a restaurant called Dame in, um, I think it's in the village or, yeah, it's in the village. They were harassing that restaurant for a while. And then they started harassing the health commissioner's house and then Gracie Mansion, which is where Eric Adams lives. And they were all doing these things together. So their network was very easy to monitor and trace. Um, and so when they started harassing drag story hour, which was undeniably, they were doing that as a result of far right propaganda that was being pushed into all of their social media spaces, trying to convince them that drag story hour is, you know, the Satan incarnate. 
um, they start showing up and trying to harass those and immediately they're known. They tried to harass, um, they tried to disrupt um, AOC at a listening event that she was doing in Queens. Immediately they were known. It was like, I saw the footage and I was like, that's Robert White. That's, you know, Cliff Lee, that's Ronan Levy. And it's doing that because they're known, because it's clear that it's one group that's showing up and doing this, trying to trying to follow the lead on what is the trending outrage on the far right that week. It limits the number of people who are interested in joining them because it they rely on making it seem like they are just neighbors and constituents who aren't happy with XYZ. And it's like, no, you're a coordinated group of harassers. Yeah. We we know who you are. So that mask being off definitely, I think, has helped to reduce the willingness to grow in those uh, harassments. But I can't necessarily speak to the future on what would hold or like what other people have been inspired by them because we have seen neo-Nazis show up in other states to protest drag story hour the same way that these this little you know band of harassers has been harassing story hours yeah um yeah sorry just a direct response to that Um, we'll see that i definitely agree um that yeah we've been monitoring the movements of uh the main actors in the anti-vax movement for a while but i did want to say that it is occasionally other groups but that they all have the same thing in common and that they um, attach to the kind of hot topic issue that they see happening in other cities and states so we did have actually like a very like Certainly, Christo fascist group, um, uh, TFP, I believe that it was called, who um, you know had publicly announced a, a rally to harass Astoria, or initially was mm-hmm. latched onto that. Um, but all of it is kind of following national trends um, because they were initially trying to make CRT in schools be the thing. Um, yeah. That was a, a multitude of different groups that were trying, and you know they're looking for something that sticks, and they're looking for something that passerby or um, any given passerby walking by will see their side of if they hear it. Um, but their lack of success though is because of their, you know, violence and uh, not especially convincing and very human on sounding antics to where it is clear that um, they are not actually there protesting what they claim themselves they're protesting. Um, you know, they're, they're losing sympathy because eventually their signs started being about Antifa instead of about allegedly protecting the children and stuff. Um, so their own messaging is uh, kind of probably also at fault there. But um, this issue is still always going to be at risk for attracting different neo-Nazi groups. Um, I mean, we see in Orlando now there's a whole coalition of Nazis who are joining together to attack Story Hour. Um, we've actually seen some of that in New York, although it was just coincidence that this one crazy anti-vaxxer group um, was showing up to attack Story Hour the same day that... Uh, perhaps other groups were. Um, I don't want to say too much about that at the moment because I think Tom had something. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, about the you know neo-Nazis and other areas coming in uh, protesting these drag queen story hours. I mean, at the first bigger one we did was at Elmhurst Library. There were uh, not only somebody who was at a neo-Nazi rally in front of Trump Tower once, we had a January 6th insurrectionist. And I think uh, Talia can probably speak to those two characters a little more. But then um, there were some other, um, there was another drag queen story hour where someone from GDL showed up. Uh, and I'm sure you're familiar with GDL, Robert, right? Yes, yes. 
Yeah, the Goyam Defense League. These guys yeah. drive around in the hate bus flying the swastika. They're, yeah, I mean, you just said swastika, but in case people are not aware of what Goyam means, it, what you need to know is the Goyam Defense League are hardcore Nazis. Yeah, like they are legitimate, straight-up neo-Nazis. They fly yeah. the swastika. They go harass Jewish neighborhoods. Yeah. Um, so Ca- capital N. Was, yeah. yeah, capital N, Nazi. <laughs> Yeah, one of them uh, went and harassed one of the uh, drag queen story hours recently. Uh, then he uh, ran off and said he was going to get his friends and didn't show up with anyone else from what Aww. I heard. <laughs> then uh, speaking of neo-Nazis, you probably know, uh, Jovi Val. Who I oh, think oh yeah. yeah. Yeah, Jovi and I had a conversation a couple <laughs> of years ago with, with my good friend Goad. <laughs> yeah, your old buddy. Mm-hmm. Well, he showed up at a, um, I believe it was a pediatric healthcare facility. I don't know if they do gender affirming care, but he was in front yeah, of that neither place did he. up a sign. I'm sorry? I said, neither did he. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> it, was, it was literally because the clinic had uh, pride flags in the window. Yeah, that makes oh, sense. Oh, okay. That, that yeah, makes so sense. He was holding up a sign that said, uh, I'd rather a Nazi than a pedophile. Which is just like a nonsensical, and b like just say you're a Nazi, bro. Just say you're a Nazi, bro. We all know. Just say you're a fucking Nazi. Why is that the choice? Mm-hmm. It's so funny because there's like pictures of him with the swastika necklace, yeah. like doing the Roman salute. Like, dude, everyone knows you're a Nazi. Yeah. <laughs> no, he's completely unashamed, and that's the weirdest part about him because of uh, you know he learned an interesting lesson about wearing just a you know, a MAGA hat in a bar in Brooklyn a few years ago, if anyone knows what incident I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> Hell yeah! Hell yeah! <laughs> so I, I find it interesting that this actually did not deter him from ever leaving his house again, you know, nearly losing his entire nose. Um, so, and then still deciding to just double down and actually start carrying the Nazi flags, thinking it'll go better this time. Um, and apparently I mean, he just to be fair, this yeah. guy's trying to make Nazi shit. He's trying to make his name again in 2022. Like Jovi Val is like, he's, he's <clears throat> expired and he doesn't seem to realize that. No, he's like, one he's of like, like, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to show up and I'm going to have nobody with me. And I'm just going to be standing <laughs> in front of a closed pediatric clinic, like with a sign telling people all they see from a distance is the word pedophile and the word Nazi. I mean, he did have his one little buddy with him in fairness, according to his own videos that he posted of the encounter. And that buddy of his, whoever he was, could be heard saying uh, something like, hey man, you know I can't fight. (laughs) I actually, I saw saw the video that Jovi, that got posted on Telegram and he said, Jovi, I can't fight. I can't fight, man. Jovi, I can't fight. (laughs) And uh, you can also hear Jovi yelling, what are you doing? What are you doing? As he gets tossed into like a construction area. And he's such an embarrassment to like even other Nazis. They were even making fun of him online. I mean, somebody literally said, uh, why does Jovi always get his ass kicked? This is ridiculous. He is he is the kind of he is the kind and generation of Nazi that other Nazis consider cringe. Like (laughs) exactly. Fucking Jovi Val. I hate him so much. At, at the same time, though, it is a little bit alarming because all of this uh, tension on 
figures such as Jovi Val failing every time and like stepping on rakes metaphorically every time he goes outside, it does kind of open a nerving vacuum up to like, oh, what? I can be a way better Nazi than that. Yeah. Um, so that is the part that concerns me if um, the constant attention is that. Um, you know, Jovi Val did not succeed in organizing a transphobic Nazi rally outside of a closed pediatric clinic. Okay, I guess that's a win. But who else sees that and sees and thinks, oh, we can do so much better because we do have a problem with unidentified Nazis throughout New York City. There's, you know, there's been increases in all sorts of graffiti all over the subways, um, Nazi literature being put on trains and left in places. It's, uh, you know, so who is seeing this and how, what is the messaging exactly to say that yeah. like, you won't succeed if you try this either, just because, you know, Jovi keeps getting his shit rocked. Like, we need you to know you will, you will too. <laughs> you will get your shit. I mean, that's the most important thing, at least in, in my experience. And, and that is mostly as an observer. I'm not an organizer, but I've, I've watched what's happened in the Pacific Northwest. And the reason why these people don't rally in Portland the way they used to is they were faced with consequences and that required, I mean, that was, that was not a simple process. It took fucking five years and a lot of people got broken bones and a number of them got killed. But like, that is, that is the thing people like these people's lives have to be cratered. And one of the things that is a real problem is that it's a lot easier to crater people for rallying, or it used to be number one, it used to be easier to crater people's lives because they were willing to rally with Nazis. But also now the right has succeeded in mainstreaming these two specific things, going after drag uh, queen story hour events and going after reproductive health care clinics and the people using them to such a degree that it's gotten a lot harder to ruin people's lives over this sort of thing. That's, that's true, but at the same time, yeah. there is an increase in so many of them who are just unabashedly that way yeah. who post their full names, addresses, photos. They say, uh, you know, identifying or doxing them is not there. It's just actually almost, uh, yeah. Empowers yeah, I them think in, being in some a ways. bigot is in vogue again. You know? Yeah. Like most, like a large chunk of the country is totally fine. If you're a crazy bigot. <laughs> The far right is radicalizing in a sort of gradual pace over the course of many years. Um, and what's happening with um, people who are countering them is that there is this density of media and pundits sort of um, looking down their nose at the uh, decorum of countering them. So, you know, we, we look at Penn State. Um, students showed up in mass, hundreds of them, um, significantly outnumbered the Proud Boys that did show up, the fascists that did show up, and successfully shut the event down. But there's still this like armchair punditry reflex to say, oh, well, they didn't do it right. There's no like, the right. old, it's not oh. the right way to protest. And I think um, what Barry is sort of, Barry mentioned earlier about everyday anti fascists. Yeah. And that's, again, like with your neighbors and recognizing that it's not this weird, um, inaccessible, like isolated group of people who solely show up very militant and in black block. And they've got like all this training and all these like slogans and slang and words. And, you know, it's it's none of that iconography because that is also the conservative media, i.e. Andy No constantly refers to all sorts of things 
as, oh, this is just Antifa. And the purpose of that is to make it seem like you can't do that too. When in reality, he, uh, Andy No, that little shit stain. Yeah. He referred to <laughs> the defense of the, the successful defense at the uh, Elmhurst Library. He claimed that it was Antifa militants. And I happen to know there was a pastor who was there. There was a nursing mother with her infant and her toddler who was there. There were librarians present and there were people who showed up because they were in the neighborhood and they heard that far right extremists were going to try and harass. And sure enough, just like Tom mentioned, there was a J6 insurrectionist who tried to get into the building. I recognize like rushed into Mitchell. the building. Yeah, he tried to rush in. I recognized him. His name's Mitchell Bosch. He's best known for getting arrested for taking a knee in a Burger King. God to get arrested damn it. For wearing God uh, damn it. MLK hoodie. Yeah. This guy tried to rush in and I don't know how it happened, but all of a sudden my arm was hooked into his arm, twisting his upper body slightly. So he didn't have a good, he didn't have good leverage to try and burst into the building where I knew that if he got in, he would refuse to leave until he was physically removed by police. So that way then he could then go online and say that he was fighting for freedom and collect bullshit donations for bullshit legal funds. So getting all back to this though, is that the media and like these, these pundits and everything, they are complicit in making it harder for people to build community, but people need to understand it is literally your neighbors. It is your local librarians. It is your uh, friends. It is your coworkers. It's regular people. The same way people showed up to protest in 2020, they, you know, Oh, should I bring a sign? Should I bring a bottle of water? Should I bring my ID? What should I bring? And they just showed up and they marked you can do the same thing because when you have a significant number of people, you don't need to worry about being militant because you outnumber them. And across the board, if you look at data, the, 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 the positions and the, the politics that these people hold and the things that they're pushing are in the significant minority of opinion. A majority of people are totally fine with trans people. They're totally fine with drugs story hour. Like it's, not a thing, but people aren't showing up to remind them that their opinion is the minority and well, that they are outnumbered. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, I agree with that last point. And unfortunately the problem seems to be about our kind of uh, cultural um, inability to agree on the definition of violence and how, even though people are okay, largely with queer and trans people and protecting trans kids, um, and they definitely do not support Nazis. Um, they still do not think that um, any kind of militant action, including violence against these people, is ever appropriate. Um, and just uh, a direct response to the Penn State thing, it goes beyond punditry even because Penn State itself released a statement saying that um, that it does not condone violence without saying who started the violence, a.k.a. the Proud Boys who were amazing people. Um, they said that uh, just because you don't agree with a speaker and their right to free speech, aka um, hateful tour of Gavin McInnes and the Proud Boys, um, that there is no excuse for violence. So they denounced the content of the message as well as the response to the message. So we're kind of in this limbo where um, people who have the voice to send these messages are still playing the meet at the dinner table, both sides. Surely we can come to a peaceful resolution and then blaming the side that actually is militantly opposed to it and how to overcome that. 
I don't know, but I do think the, like Tali also said, everyday anti-fascism is a pretty good start. Yeah, I mean, with everyday anti-fascism, like the right does this grassroots organizing and gets people to like tacitly agree with what the Proud Boys and these fascist groups do. I think there's plenty of like normal people who would tacitly agree with what we're doing on this side of things. Um, but I mean, you look at like, I think it was a somebody uh, campaigning for maybe it was Ron DeSantis. Robert, do you know about this? Uh, it was like a literal neo-Nazi who got no, it was a Rubio. Rubio, and it was a the guy Marco was a, a member of the. Yeah. Um, he was a Cuban he, fascist who was a member yeah. of the League of the South. He, so he yeah, was exactly. a big Confederacy guy. Yes, yeah. yes. Well, well, like there was a journalist online who was like, "This is awful." And somebody's like, "He's literally a Nazi." And then you look up this journalist's like history of articles <laughs> she's written, and one was like, "This is why you should be friends with a Nazi," or I'm paraphrasing, but that's literally like we should befriend Nazis. Like it's it is ridiculous how so much of the mainstream is like, let's come to the table and be polite. I mean, I really think and I think a lot of other people think when it comes to Nazis and fascists in the far right, you have to make it as costly as possible. Whatever that means to you, <laughs> you have to make it as costly as possible for them. So they are deterred from doing this organizing. Yeah, I, I think that's the the most durable conclusion, certainly that I have seems like what y'all have experienced too and are continuing to experience is there is there anything else y'all wanted to get into about about what's been happening in in with with these events before we kind of close out for the day the only thing i could think to add was that that it's not over and um people might think oh they stopped coming to drag story hours for whatever reason but they're going to find the next thing the next issue the next clinic the next hospital the next um healthcare provider the next uh, family was trans children. Uh, they have dresses, they have names, they know where to go. They are just looking for when they feel most emboldened to do so. Um, and it's kind of, it's hard to communicate that because people think, oh, okay, that was a successful action. You know, we're done. We're done with them for now. But it, I don't know. It's, it's, it's just, it's really hard to communicate the message that like, you know, it's, we've got like head on a swivel uh, this is the this is the hardest thing to not just to get across to people but to kind of like actively accept for yourself because it's it's one of the most frustrating realities of living in our society but there's no way to get around it which is that like not being eaten by these people is the result of constant vigilance against them like mm -hmm. They they win if you don't continue showing up. And one day in 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 the bright blue yonder, I do believe that if people continue showing up and continue making it clear that their cause is hopeless, these people will all drink themselves to death or whatever. But um, you know that's that's not an immediate term sort of thing. No, I know. Well, and uh, I mean, on for just my personal note, like yes, that is exactly the mode I'm in now. And I I mean I'm a Jewish anti-fascist organizer. It's almost this kind of history repeating itself, ancestral need um, to, to keep at it. And I'm one of many people um, in the same kind of mindset to where it's not an option to rest and wait until they, you know, strike when they think we're not looking. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, you know, obviously hard. Yeah. To I mean, we have like, we have evidence that they are looking for the next thing. We have evidence that um, you know, there's this one woman who got heavily involved with um, the anti-vax group, New York Freedom Rally, 
Um, and she would go on, you know, Instagram live streams saying a lot of like transphobic stuff, but she never transferred that over onto public spaces until this week where she reiterated the same points that she was making in the privacy of her home on that live stream to her little audience. She's now saying it on a stage that she's sharing with the candidate for governor, Lee Zeldin. Um, she's, she's repeating these same things. So it's showing also that they are finding it, they're finding themselves more comfortable in saying these uh, bigoted things and, and, pushing more extreme things and expecting for their followers and their uh, friends to follow suit. There's people who've shown up to these uh, harassments of drag story hour who have said directly to me that they don't really agree with the harassment itself, but that their friends are there doing the harassment. And so they're showing up for them. And that's a very quick road to, they're going to decide to care about this very deeply and go very hard about it. But what has worked is when people show up and make it not happy and not good for them, when their footage is ruined, when their sound bites are fucked up, when they are blocked from doing the thing that they are trying to do to generate mm -hmm. that content, to feed that like bigoted beast. When people show up, when those events keep happening, that's a big thing is that like the venues that host these events need to not cancel them. Yeah. Because when those venues cancel, it tells the bigots that they are winning. And yep. what needs to happen is the venues feeling brave to put out calls for community support the same way that happened in Eugene. Because when that venue put out that ask, they got hundreds of people mm -hmm. and they outnumbered the bigots 10 to one. I was just going to say, I was, I'm very heartened by like how supportive the uh, people in the neighborhoods and libraries have been, whether they're allowed to officially support anything or not it's been uh you know nice to know that people are happy we're there and also i would really love to see a meme of jovi val stepping on a rake now that you have that image in my head yeah <laughs> um was there anything else we wanted to get to uh self-defense is community offense defense yeah and um if people are interested um People in New York created something called IFAC Fund, uh, where you donate funds, and then people who want to receive individual first aid kits um, can request one and receive one for free. Um, and it was created in honor of a anti-fascist badass named Torch, um, who is always presente. Um, but yeah, if if people wanted to check that out, it's uh, the Twitter account is just at IFAC fund, IFAK fund. Um, if they want to donate, I think it's uh, Cash App is IFAC fund. I think, you know, someone else could look it up to, to check. To confirm, yeah, it's dollar but... sign IFAC fund. Oh, I'm sorry. Dollar sign IFAC fund. Thank you. <laughs> At dollar uh, sign whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, it, it's just a matter of like knowing that we keep us safe in every sense of the word. Yeah. And I think that's a, that's a perfect note to end on. Thank you all for your time. Thank you for continuing to be out there in the streets. Um, and everybody else get out there and make a fascist stay worse. Yep, yep, yep.
wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a, a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. We live in an age of uprising. From Haiti to Hong Kong, from Ecuador to Sudan, from Chile to Myanmar, from the U.S. to Iran, an entire generation has been confronted with the horror of our world and took the simple expedient of picking up a brick and throwing it at a cop. Yet as the uprising swept the globe, there was one country where it was considered impossible. Every expert, every policymaker, every kid on a street corner knew there was simply no chance of a mass street movement in China. On Monday, it was unimaginable. On Friday, it was everywhere. Welcome to It Could Happen Here. What we've been watching for the past three weeks now is the failure of one of the most sophisticated political regimes in human history a political, social, and economic regime designed specifically to stop this one moment. After 30 years of repression, the national mass street movement has returned to China. This is what it was all about. Everything from the censorship policies to union busting to subsidized mortgages for a rising Chinese middle class, it was about keeping people from going back to the streets, to make even the idea of it impossible. And yet, here we are. In one sense, the party has little to fear from this round of protests, barring an immense intensification of violence, which, at the moment, seems extremely unlikely. But in another sense, the CCP is perhaps the last regime on earth that truly remembers the previous age of revolution, that remembers when the workers took Shanghai in 67 and very nearly took Beijing in 89. These are people who understand that China's political system is built on shaving a sleeping bear. And no matter how profitable that system is, there's always a chance that one day that bear is going to wake up. 
Now, the bear isn't fully awake yet. We are not watching in China a full-scale uprising a la Sudan or Myanmar. But that bear, the heir to maybe the most militant working class the modern world has ever seen, is starting to open its eyes. So what is the CCP currently facing? Since about November 26th, there have been widespread anti-government protests in China. Unlike anything we've seen in the last 30 years, these protests are everywhere. They're in Beijing, they're in Nanjing, they're in Shanghai, they're in Guangzhou, they're in Xinjiang, we'll get back to that one in a second. They're in Wuhan. Reports I saw said that there were protests at 77 universities. That number is almost certainly an undercount now. And these student protests are not just taking place at small colleges in the middle of nowhere. There were protests at Tsinghua University, which, for an American audience, I would compare to China's version of Harvard. It's the college that produces the upper echelon of the Chinese ruling class. Xi Jinping graduated from there. So did his predecessor, Hu Jintao. And the only reason that Hu Jintao's predecessor did not graduate from there is that that guy was so old that he went to college under the Japanese occupation. When I was originally writing this, I had a joke here about how the only city where there haven't been protests is Harbin, which is the city in the absolute middle of nowhere in northern China. But no, I googled it, and it turns out there have been protests in bloody Harbin. For people who aren't very good at Chinese geography, which is probably most people, this means these protests are everywhere. They're in the north, they're in the south, they're in the east, they're in the west, they're in the far west. And it's true that a lot of these protests are not that big, although some of them are absolutely massive. But the importance here is that this is the first time in 30 years that we've seen widespread national protest over a single issue in China, the enormity of which is compounded by the fact that people in the streets of cities like Shanghai are openly calling for the fall of the CCP and Xi Jinping, something that by itself can get you a decade in prison just for saying. We can ask what these protests are actually about. The version you see in the American press is that these are anti-lockdown protests or protests against China's COVID zero policy or that they're also pro-democracy protests against the entire regime. And this is sort of true as far as it goes, but it doesn't capture the core of what's going on, which is that what we're seeing is a widespread fusion of labor rebellion, anti-police brutality protests, and a revolt against the authoritarian state. The thing that's brought all of this together is the CCP's COVID policy. But that's because that policy is the most visible and most concentrated expression of the state's general authoritarianism and brutal war against the working class. We can learn a lot about what's actually been happening by going back a little bit to the very start of the protests. There are three specific events that sparked the protests, two of which are pretty well covered, and one of which has been basically ignored because of how long ago it happened. The first spark is essentially an event in its own right. This is what I would call the Foxconn Revolt, a series of worker uprisings against the manufacturer of the iPhone, which, with a single factory, controls vast portions of the regional economy of Henan province, where its largest factory is based. The Foxconn Revolt has been brewing for a long time. It began essentially when Foxconn began to impose what's called the closed-loop system, the closed-loop system was originally developed by the NBA to run an NBA season during the beginning of the pandemic. The idea is that you keep everyone inside a closed loop. This means that everyone in the production process has no contact with the outside world at all for as long as the manufacturing cycle goes. 
The CCP started adopting the closed loop as they hit problems with their twin imperatives to both stop COVID and also to make sure that Foxconn hit its production targets so Apple could have enough iPhones for the Christmas rush. The result was that as an October wave of infections hit Hainan province, where Foxconn's largest factory was located, 200,000 workers were put into a closed loop system, which meant they were trapped in the factory in their dormitories. In order to keep this factory running, Foxconn needs about 100,000 migrant workers. The problem from Capital's perspective with migrant workers is that they can, if things get bad enough, just go home. And that's exactly what happened. Workers inside the Foxconn plant started to be quarantined with people who were sick in the same dormitory. And it's worth noting here that these dormitories are tiny, the conditions even outside of lockdown are atrocious. And when people were suddenly getting quarantined with people who were sick, workers essentially just said no and started to stage massive breakouts. There are incredible videos of these trains of people like along the road walking home and sort of hitching rides on people's trucks fleeing the factory. We don't actually know how many workers escaped, but it was enough to be a massive problem for capital. Again, they need these workers in order to make enough iPhones to sell for Christmas. Current estimates suggest that Apple is somewhere between 11 and 15 million units behind what it needs to make the Christmas rush. So, Foxconn had the local government recruiting people to go work in the factory. What they told these workers was that if they entered the closed loop for 30 days, they'd be given 3,000 yuan, which is about $415, to live on for the next month, and then get paid 30 yuan, or about $4 an hour. And then, after the end of the next 30 days, they'd get another 3,000 yuan. In the US, this would be a sub-minimum wage poverty job. For a Chinese worker, this is a lot of money. Or, it would have been... Had it not been for one minor problem, all of it was bullshit. Foxconn and the CCP were lying out of their asses. After workers were already in the closed loop, they learned that the two 3,000 yuan bonuses weren't going to be paid until March and May of next year. Meaning that in order to get what they were promised for two months of work, they were going to have to work for seven months. Also, the 30 yuan an hour wage that they were promised was a lie. They were getting paid substantially less than that. So, on Tuesday the 22nd of November, workers who had emerged from quarantine to start work, only to learn that they had been systemically lied to by both the government and uh, Chinese and Taiwanese capitalists, came out of their dormitories and demanded that they either get their money or be allowed to leave. There's another part of this account that I think complicates a lot of the sort of narratives that we've heard about what these Chinese protests are about that did not make the Western press at all, which is that these workers were also demanding that their bosses, quote, implement pandemic prevention and control measures. Um, it's not entirely clear what the specific demands refers to, but it seems to be about not quarantining sick people in the same dorms as healthy people, a thing that seems relatively obvious, but capitalism. Regardless, the product of bosses ignoring these demands was several days of full-scale fighting with the police. On November 23rd, a bunch of videos began to spread of workers taking those metal police barricades that you see all the time in the U.S. that are essentially an arch with a bunch of bars connecting them to a flat base. You've, you've probably seen these. Picking them up and straight up throwing them at cops or grabbing them and beating police riot shields with them. I have, I have never seen anything like it. It was absolutely wild. 
At this point, after several days of fighting, after their own regular security people literally refused to show up to go fight these workers and police from outside had to be called in, Foxconn gave up, said, okay, we will give you 10,000 yuan to literally leave right now. Please just stop. And a lot of people took the money and left. And in any other year, in any other moment, that would have been the end of it. The Foxconn riots would be another episode in the never-ending series of they tried not to pay us riots that are the most common, one of the most common forms of workers' protest in China. Instead, on Thanksgiving Day in the United States, videos started to circulate of a fire in a residential block in Urumqi, the capital of Xinjiang. There are several videos of the fire. In one that journalists were able to verify, you can hear people screaming from inside the building as they tried and failed to escape the flames. Further videos showed that cops had barricaded off the streets with metal wires as a way to enforce Xinjiang's 100-day-long lockdown, which prevented firefighters from getting to the scene. Firefighters can be seen firing water hoses at the building only for the hose's arc to fall short, trapped behind barricades that prevented them from getting any closer. Speculation about whether the doors of the apartment building themselves had been sealed shut with locks or barricaded from the outside, as had happened to so many other people's homes during the lockdown, ran rampant. One video I saw from another city appeared to show workers in hazmat suits, who've become known as the Big Whites, literally welding someone's door shut to keep them in. To make matters worse, the head of the Arumchi City Fire Rescue Department blamed the families for their own deaths, saying, quote, some residents' abilities to rescue themselves were too weak. These are the videos, the fragments of nightmares brought to life, that started the mass protests. This is a revolution seen in 30-second intervals. Everyone is trying to beat the censors. Clips flow back and forth between WeChat, Twitter, Telegram, back to WeChat again. Ironically, many censors were already home for the weekend, allowing clips and posts that otherwise would have been removed immediately to circulate for hours, and sometimes even days. These brought back the memory of the third spark, the one that's basically been forgotten about in the West, if anyone even cared to know about it in the first place. In September, a bus full of people with COVID in Guangzhou that the government was shipping to a quarantine center crashed and killed 27 people, wounding 20 others. Conditions in these centers, which COVID patients are often forced to go to rather than quarantining in their homes, are atrocious. Pictures and videos circulate constantly of bathrooms covered in human shit from failing drainage systems, as China's already overtaxed medical system simply failed to keep up with the demands on it placed by the government, which, like the American government, has and continues to systematically refuse to invest in medical infrastructure. Intimate familiarity with these wretched conditions and the raw horror at the deaths in Xinjiang and Guangzhou sparked protests across the country. In Arumqi, a now 70% Han city under constant police occupation, Han protesters appeared to be moved in solidarity with the weaker families killed in the fire, and fought the police with a ferocity unmatched anywhere but the migrant worker villages of Guangzhou along the Pearl River Delta, one of China's great manufacturing hubs. These desperate struggles were given relatively little attention by a Western media class enamored with the image of students carrying blank white pieces of paper to protest the censorship, a common form of protest in places like Hong Kong. This time, at least, they were tied to a particularly funny piece of media censorship. As protests mounted, people started posting an article version of a speech by Mao, 
called Let the People Speak, the Sky Will Not Fall. Chinese censors quickly ran into a classic CCP problem, which is that in a state whose heroes are communist revolutionaries, celebrated historical figures produce an immense repertoire of slogans and quotes for subsequent generations of revolutionaries to draw from, which has caused the CCP at various points in time to ban the opening of its own national anthem, Arise Ye Who Refuse to Be Slaves. As censors banned Let the People Speak, the Sky Will Not Fall, people began posting the article but with the words replaced by squares. This, too, was also deleted. And then posting simply blank white squares themselves, which saw their reflection in the students in the street. The CCP, in turn, retreated to its traditional tactic of blaming the protests on foreign forces interfering in China, a claim which is less than credible in a country that has rolled up the CIA's entire in-country intelligence network at least once in the last decade. There's an incredible exchange that has made the rounds between a cop who is telling a group of protesters that there are, quote, foreign forces around manipulating the protests, who is immediately yelled at by a guy screaming, who are the foreign forces, Marx and Engels, Stalin and Lenin? Another man appears and asks, hi, can I ask if it was foreign forces who started the fire in Xinjiang? Was the Guizhou bus overturned by foreign forces? Another man grabs the mic and says, Was everyone told to come here by foreign forces? The crowd shouts no. He then makes an incredibly obvious point. We can't even access the foreign internet. How are foreign forces meant to be communicating with us? Another man says, we only have domestic forces not allowing us to govern ourselves. Where are these foreign forces? From the moon? Still, managing these accusations has become a constant part of the protests. With calls from protesters to stop chanting things like down with the CCP and attempts to keep the demands focused on COVID policy, like ending COVID zero. And this is where things get incredibly muddled by a Western press that decided to stop giving a shit about COVID deaths a year ago. And a set of contrarians arguing that no, actually, China's COVID policy is actually good. This entire debate hinges on the conflation of the stated government policy of zero COVID, which is an attempt to stop all cases of COVID and the actual execution of the policy, which has taken the form of a war against China's working class and a set of draconian police state abuses. One thing that Western quote-unquote experts have been quick to point out is that, well, the CCP has to keep doing COVID-0 or 1.5 million people will die. There is a tiny bit of truth to this, in that one reason Chinese COVID restrictions are so harsh is that if COVID was simply let rip like it has been in the US, it would go through China's largely unvaccinated rural elderly population like a chainsaw. And unlike in the US, if a million people died in China because the government fucked up a pandemic response, party officials would be getting beaten to death in the streets. And part of the reason for the crisis in China in the first place is that the rest of the world gave up on trying to contain COVID entirely. If the rest of the world had, you know, done their jobs and stamped out the virus, none of us would be here right now. On the other hand, no, absolutely not. You do not actually need to weld people into their houses or drag them by force out of their homes so they can die in bus crashes on their way to unsafe and unsanitary pseudo-hospitals with bathroom floors literally covered shit in order to contain the pandemic. Lots of pandemics across human history have been contained without doing this shit. Just because the two great world powers have decided that their COVID responses are kill a million people by forcing everyone back to work so that no one has to actually deal with the political consequences of telling a bunch of unbelievably deranged and heavily armed fascists no, 
and lock 200,000 people in a factory and force them to make iPhones and then beat the absolute shit out of them when it turns out you've lied to them about their pay doesn't mean that there aren't other options that we could take for pandemic responses if we decided to stop letting a bunch of venal and corrupt assholes rule us all. And this is something that people in China also understand, even if the Western press corps is dead set on presenting their demands as if they're American anti-maskers. You can tell, obviously, that Chinese protesters are not simply a copy of right-wing American fascists by simply looking at a picture of a protest and seeing how many people are wearing masks. China is not the US. Regular people actually do care about containing the pandemic. This is why there was a real pandemic response in the first place after the government utterly botched it. If you look at the actual demands of the protesters, you will see things that normally would seem more at home with liberal American protesters attempting to see pandemic restrictions enforced properly. Things like, our pandemic response must be based on science. But people, even people who don't want to die of a plague, do not want to be horribly abused by cops or horrifically exploited by the state and capitalists. And that, I think, is something we do all understand. Only time can tell what will happen to these protests. The government is quietly making concessions, and not so quietly hunting down people who took to the streets. It is entirely possible that the protest will simply die. And that, in two or three years, most people will have forgot they ever happened. From a sort of brutal materialist perspective, however, it seems unlikely. China's social system could function fine as long as growth was at 15%, or 10%, or even 8%. But when growth inevitably comes down to 2%, the deal of keep your head down and everyone will get rich starts to look a lot less attractive. COVID has simply intensified all of the traditional contradictions inside Chinese society and made visible the horrors that previously had been obscured, and it seems unlikely that those contradictions will someday vanish. But here in the present, the impossible continues, and every day it does is another day that the gates of possibility inch a bit further open. This has been Naked Happened Here. You can find us at Happened Here Pod on Twitter or Instagram. We have a website, coolzonemedia.com, where you can see the sources for this and other episodes. Enjoy your week, and remember that you too can defeat your own ruling class. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. It could happen here, Rail Strike Edition. I'm Robert Evans, Garrison Davis, Chris. How are we all? How are we all doing? How's this? We're talking about a rail strike today. We're praying if you're for listening it. To so this, bad. We're praying for it. It hasn't happened. If you're listening to this, you probably know the broad strokes of this, which is that the people who make the trains go. And by the way, trains are like a critical part of us all not starving to death or running out of insulin or whatever. The people who make those trains go have a pretty hard job, and there's not a lot of them. And for a variety of reasons that boil down to companies not wanting to spend money, uh, it's impossible for that. They don't get sick days. Um, so there were a bunch of other shit, thing, like things that were shit about the job, including pay, especially since uh, rail company profits have been at like record levels. So they were threatening to strike. There were union negotiations. Some of the union leaders reached an agreement with the rail companies. Uh, but it wasn't. It didn't include the sick days. Uh, so a lot of workers, potentially most of them, uh, are were at least willing to strike. And then Biden came in and had Congress basically say, "Do the same thing Reagan did to the air traffic controllers in the '80s, where it's like, no, if you strike, it's illegal because this is a too critical a service for the country." Anyway. That's broadly the situation. Chris, you know this a lot better than I do. Yeah. Probably so, pro, the most pro-labor president. The most pro-labor oh president. Oh, my God. Okay. It's I, very I, frustrating. I want to put this out. This is, I think this is actually like... That's, that's, I think, I don't, like, I don't that's know. my knowledge, and I think that's close to a layman's knowledge. So I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm waiting so, for you to fill in the gaps. Okay, here. all right. Let, Did, let's, let's, let's start with what Biden has actually done, because it's, it's, it's slightly different than what Reagan was doing there with the air traffic controllers. Um, part of the reason everything is fucked up with the railroads is that, like, railroads, almost since their inception, have had, like, an almost entirely different regulatory framework than, like, anything else. So, you know, your normal strike is covered by the National Labor Relations Act, right? You go through your National Labor Relations Board, you do your votes, blah, 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 blah. Uh, if your railroad workers are not covered by that, they're covered something by something called the, the Railway Labor Act, which lets Congress just be like, no, fuck you. Uh, you have to take this contract. And the other thing it does, is, I mean, there is like a, it is a. Oh, I didn't realize that. So yeah. well before, so well before like, you know, the modern era and Reagan did his shit with the air traffic controllers, there was a, it was written into the law that Congress could say like, yay or yeah. nay to a rail strike. That's really yeah. interesting. I guess and, that probably and, goes back to the days when they were literally making them out of human bones. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's been so. It's been amended over time, and it's changed a bit. And there's some other stuff that happened in the '90s after there was a, there was a, there was a failed rail strike in the '90s where Congress is also just like, no, fuck you, you have to take this contract. 
But yeah, the, the, the important thing about this is that like, okay, so in order to even potentially strike, you have to go through so much bullshit. It's called self-help in the law. Like the people have been trying to strike for two years and everything that we're seeing now is the product of two years of bullshit of these, like there's all of this nonsense you have to go through. There's these like cooling off, mandatory cooling off periods. You can't like, uh, you, 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 you know, you have to like wait before you do anything else and you have to go to the next step, the next step. And the final step is Joe Biden had the choice to either let these rail workers strike and actually get the things that they fucking needed or he could tell them to fuck off and just eat a contract. And that 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 that's what's happened right now is that Joe Biden has just and and also again with the support of both houses of Congress and yeah. I, I I also like explicitly yeah. want to mention here that a, a lot a lot of nominally socialist politicians, including like AOC, a, a lot of social democrats have signed. Yeah, on. yeah, yeah. Voted, let's, yeah voted. let's talk about that too because that that's that's another part of it that again. So my my surface, and I'm, I guess I'm playing playing the podcast idiot in this one, uh, which is not abnormal for me. But my like layman's understanding of what happened with this is that uh, there was a bill up in Congress as to whether or not to endorse this, and uh, a bunch of progressives said that they wouldn't vote on it unless it included seven days of paid sick leave, including Sanders. That got pushed off into a separate bill, and there was like some kind of sketchy wording about like, well, we won't, you know, like I, I don't, I don't 100% understand the congressional hijinks, but I know they just wound up voting for the, the, the negotiate, like what the union had negotiated without any sick leave. Like it, it, they, yeah. Like it, it seems like it kind of provided an opportunity for a bunch of progressives in the house to vote uh, yes on the sick leave, knowing that it wouldn't pass the Senate and knowing that the strike would still get stopped. Right. Like what am yeah. I missing there? Um, I mean, it's basically that like the, I'm not a Congress knower. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a bunch of sort of hijinks that were happening in Congress where there was a, there was a slightly different version of the bill in the House, and they had this whole thing. But okay, I, I actually, the House I, the, the 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 House one for sick leave did, did pass with support of every yeah, Democrat yes, yeah and, except and and three and three Republicans. But okay, um, I, the, the, the thing I, the thing I want to point out here, and I want to move away from the sick leave thing because the sick the, the fact that these people don't have sick leave is important. This is also not like the main thing the strike was about. Like things are things are things are so much worse. Like things are things are so much like infinitely worse than people like at all understand. Like what the the thing that the thing this real strike is about, if you if you go like actually talk to the people who are doing it, is that these people are on call for 90% of their lives. Like and and when I say 90% of their lives, they are on call while they're asleep. They're on call constantly. Uh, there's 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 no way to even there's no way to plan a consistent sleep schedule because you can just be on call, and you know and, and part 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 of what's going on here. And if if you read the sort of detailed accounts, you you will see a lot of people talking about this thing called precision scheduled railroading. Yeah, precision scheduled railroading was it it, it was a great theory kind of that was implemented so atrociously badly. It's basically fucked like the entire economy. Um, the, the idea behind it was like you could you could schedule when like a freight railroad was going to go, right? And this this would give you a bunch of efficiency bonuses. You could plan like you could schedule things around each other. Um, this just didn't happen. People implemented it, but what they implemented was just this nightmare like amalgamation of we're going to reduce a bunch of staff and then we're going to make these trains that have like two hundred fucking cars on them. 
And this has been a catastrophe. Uh, let's go monster trains. There's there's uh, Justin Rosniak, who's a, a podcast. Yeah, it doesn't see it doesn't seem like a good solution to the problem no. of not enough guys to make trains work is make the trains huge. Yeah, <laughs> that and, and, seems and, and, like it's destined to end in horrible train crash. It's awful. Like these trains are nuts. And they, they, again, these things are two hundred trains long, right? So if if you don't get the weight distribution right, the train will fucking fall over. They keep doing this. There's this has been happening for like several years now. Is there's just trains everywhere derailing. There's like no coverage of it. The reason is uh, you, no you know is you know you know you know where I knew yet. that from. Chris Garrison what? will tell you when I get when I get drunk or something late at night. My favorite oh, thing to watch yeah. is videos <laughs> of trains train hitting derail. stuff and de- yeah. train crashes are amazing to watch. It's incredible to think of all the human ingenuity it took to make that there's, big thing go boom. There's thousands of videos on YouTube of a semi so cool. cargo getting stuck on train tracks. <laughs> And yeah. a train just it happens so often. through there. Yeah. And you get to see Amazon so boxes often. being pulverized in the air. They get it's, vaporized. It's, it's so cool. So the downside is that one day we're going to have one of these trains that is run by a person who has had three hours of sleep in the last 48 hours. And it's going to be carrying like fucking... I don't know, it's going to be carrying, like, sodium nitrate on it or some shit. And it's just going to explode. And it is going to kill an enormous... Number of people. This actually happened in Canada like a decade ago. But yeah, like these these trains are too big. They're so big they don't fit in the fucking rail yards. Like they're so big that most of the train infrastructure doesn't work for them. They are so the other thing is okay, they're, they're really 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 badly planned despite the fact that this is supposed to be precision scheduled railroading. Like they're unbelievably badly planned. You have people just like being forced to just like sit there for 12 hours in a train wait like waiting for the the rest of the, like the other like 95 cars that are supposed to be on this train to show up. You know, the, the situation is like is utterly nightmarish. And the other thing about this, right, is if you're an engineer, right, and you're in one of these trains and you're sitting there for 12 fucking hours in this train, you legally can't have your phone because, you know, I mean, this is a safety thing, right? And in some sense, this makes sense. It's like a safety measure. You can't have your phone because, you know, you can't be distracted while you're driving, but you're just fucking sitting on the tracks for like 12 hours. And, you know, this, this, this stuff is, you know, and the fact that the fact that people are on call constantly, the fact that the entire rail network is just physically falling apart because, the other thing about these trains, right, is they make an enormous amount of money. None of them ever fucking show up on time. It's a disaster. It's a catastrophe. Like, like, like genuinely, like, part of the reason why we're having all these supply issues is that no train has fucking showed up on time in, like, four years. And but it's that's okay. because of this the new contract. It's okay. that The new contract signed in says that workers can have up to three unpaid days off for medical appointments. Oh, wow. Uh, that's something. Um, Yay! It's an un- bullshit. Three like, unpaid days days off for pre-made medical appointments. Yeah, not, none solving of which the problem forever. Yeah, and again, like 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 these people are on call for ninety percent of their lives. You can't even like like you can't schedule when you're going to sleep because you might be on call. And on call might be you have to fucking like drive like several hours to a place. So you can get on a train and the train cannot leave and the train eventually leaves like six hours later and you fucking drive and then you're just like dropped off somewhere in the middle of fucking right. nowhere and then unpaid you have to go back to like where you live. It is like it, like okay the, the, the thing the thing I want to like get out of this is like the railroading system in general the, the system of freight railroading that we have in the US is is in the midst of collapsing like it, it is falling apart it is not working it is is becoming increasingly dangerous it is i mean utterly inhumane for the people working on it and and you know none of the fucking even this even the sick bill contract like didn't do anything for it right the, the only way this actually could have been resolved is if joe biden and if the democrats and if congress hadn't been fucking cowards and had let these people strike 
because the, these kinds of concessions, like, and, and, you know, I also like, I don't want to let the fucking unions off the hook here too, because they know all of this. But again, most of the sort of like senior union people are very tight with, are very tight with the democratic party. This is part of why all of this shit was postponed till after the elections, because they didn't, you know, they didn't want to fucking deal with this shit. They've been trying to force people to sign these contract too. And it's, it's, it's a shit show. It is a just absolute catastrophe on, on every, every level. Yeah. I mean, it's almost as if the rail system probably shouldn't be run by private interests. No. Uh, shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. Cause there's going to be now a hundred, 115,000 rail workers who are forced to work under these yeah. still not great conditions. Meanwhile, the managers and the owners of the railroads get to go back to just making tons of money. Yeah. yeah. And, and record, I think- again, record profits. None of this is happening. Not that that would make it okay, but none of this is happening in an environment while well, you know, we're running at a loss and we, we have no money and no ability to like, t- like they have, they're making hundreds of billions of dollars yeah. in profit. Like this is, this is like one of the most profitable times to run a railroad in US And you history. can incentivize more people to be railroad workers if the job isn't a fucking nightmare. For example, what if instead of not being able to have their phones, we gave each of them a DVD player and a screen with a DVD of Step Brothers and they could watch Step Brothers as much as they want while piloting a train. I think that what would actually that? Get, get. I think that would cause mass, mass layoffs at, at the rail yard. That, would, that that's that's how we get the strike. We include this in yeah. the next provision. Then they'll be forced to strike. I was I was stealthing in my accelerationist beliefs here. This is, this is the fastest way I can well, think I mean, to destroy our the transit thing. infrastructure. We've got I mean, like, I, I, we've I, got like yeah. two years before this whole thing fucking implodes, anyways. Because you know, part part of what's keeping people in the railroading system is that. So railroading also has its own pension system that's like disconnected from the regular pension system. And you, you have to you have to work there for 10 years in order to collect your pension. This is why like enormous numbers of people just haven't left. Right. And people have been leaving. Right. But there's a there's a, a huge number of people who were hired in these giant expansions in 2004. And, yeah, it's one of those, you know, like, like we're two years out from that contract from, from all these people being able to collect their pensions and fucking leaving. Yeah. When like, that happens, at that it's point, like, it's like this is the only chance I have to ever not work myself to death so i have to tough it out it's yeah it's, but it's yeah yeah but the, the, these those those people are those people are going to leave and you know this is this is the sort of like this is the sort of hammer that capitalism has built over its own head which is that like yeah congratulations you you successfully flexibilized and casualized your entire workforce that means that pe- if people like don't want to do your shitty job they can leave and find another job and at some point like there are sh- there is shit that in this economy that like actually does need to be done but these people have been sort of like so blinded by just like, you know, they're so so blinded by line grow, goes up. They're so blinded by short term profit that they 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 really don't understand that at some point there's just not going to be fucking workers to run the railroad. Yeah, I mean, and, and a lot of this situation is like, built off of no, no, it's, and, and instead of being compared to Reagan's stuff with air traffic controllers, it's actually more similar to what uh, Carter did with some with some airline workers. Um, then also with the uh, with the. The 1980 kind of a railroad deregulation act, um, which yeah, which caused which 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 gave a lot more power to companies to run the railroads, and that's that is what kind of shifted shifted things to our to our current our, our current problem because they were they gave permission for these rail companies to close down lines that were less profitable and to set their own um, uh, freight rates. And it's yeah, I mean, it's, it's a it's weird all thing. It's not being controlled like, by the Interstate Commerce uh, uh, Commission. Instead, it's being controlled by well, okay, private so equity. Th- that that thing's weird, right? Because like, 
on the one hand, like the, the the wave of corporate consolidation that happened after that is like a disaster. And the fact that there's basically like four real like rail companies now is a disaster. On the other hand, like it is also true that the Interstate Commerce Board was like dog shit at its job. No, it, it, like it also sucked. Rates. And for a short. And like, yes, absolutely. It sucked. Yeah. And for a short period of time, it actually did improve things. Yeah, um, it just but got worse. Now it's 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 powers coalescing again into the very types of monopolies that caused the that caused um, railroad regulation to be necessary back in the 19th century, like in the first place. Um, power is being consolidated again, and it's it's this vicious vicious cycle that are that fundamentally puts short term yeah. profits ab- above uh, the conditions of workers. Yeah, and I think like you know, okay, so there, there there have been a lot of people talking about like what the potential solutions to this are in a sort of macro sense because, like, okay, even 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 with a better contract, right? Like, so, so, something actually has to be done in order to force the railroads to not fucking suck and to like actually properly schedule their goddamn trains and not work everyone to death and. You know, I, I want to put that it is worth noting, like we actually did like have national a nationalized railroad company for a while. Yeah. And it was kind of a shit show. Like it. it OK. It, OK. And this is something that's also important to think about this. Like there's a lot of like there's a lot of different kinds of nationalization. Right. Like there there, there is a huge difference between a firm that's like. Te- like you know like we, we we sort of technically nationalized a bunch of the like car companies after 2008. Right. We bailed them out. But, you know, like we like in, in that stuff, we didn't really like take a we, we owned a, we owned like a bunch of their stock. We didn't like take a control. There's, interest in there's how no say in how they right? run or how they treat. Their yeah. And employees. And, and like we, we got like Nixonite, like proto neoliberal nationalization of the railroads last time. And it kind of contributed to some of the problems we have now. There was also a period where uh, Conrail's union was trying to like buy. Like the railroad. <laughs> So we we almost we almost got a railroad system that was run by its by was owned by its own union and then the 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 company just like refused to sell it to them because they were like wait no hold on we can't have a worker run railroad. So, but I, one thing one thing I am interested in is I I because I don't actually know this what would what would the how would it, how would an illegal strike actually work like what's what's the how what is the differences between people striking illegally now like there's some some discussion of that who knows if that's actually going to happen but what is the main kind of difference between that and um the non-illegal strikes so, okay so the, the big thing is okay so the, the the thing about the national labor relations act right which is the thing that covers normal strikes was that like and, and this is also true to some extent under the robot like okay so if you're doing a legal strike you have legal protections right like there there, there are things corporations can't do to you um, like, yeah, there, there, there's, there's a bunch of stuff that can't ha- like. I don't know, how to explain. Like, it's, it, it's, it's a lot harder to just sort of fire people. The other thing is that also, like, especially with something like this, there's a, like, you, 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 if, if you do, if you do a wildcat strike like this, and you, you, and specifically a strike that is like that is specifically illegal under this act, like you can all get fired. Um. I, I'm I, I think the, I think they could technically arrest you like it, it's it's I don't know that that part of it's not exactly clear to me. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, there there's sort of like. I feel like if 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 they arrest you just for not going to your job, I feel like that is a. Uh... 
I mean, you, like, well, like the, great... that that has happened to people. Like, oh, I I know people have been like, murdered. This is this is a, this is like, a thing. I, like, I, yes, yes, like in, in the long history of labor struggles, people have been straight up killed. Um, but at least in twenty in twenty twenty two, I think it would be a a bad look. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think okay. So the other, I mean, other thing is, I think where we're headed, and I think what they ought to do is just force get all of like the the worst criminals and i mean the murderers the terrorists all of those guys and you make them run the trains whoever blew up all of those power transformers in north carolina you make them run the trains and it'll be fine nothing bad will happen as a result of this it'll work out perfectly well the 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 alternative plan and the thing that maybe these rail companies are just holding out for because maybe they're just making conditions be not great and underpaying and not, and not giving sick days is because they're waiting for trains just to become autonomous. They're already planning to severely cut down the crews that are on the trains. There's already um, trains in Australia that are uh, totally autonomously run that carry mining uh, materials uh, over f for hundreds of miles. And that is the future that these that these companies I want because then they don't they, they it, don't need to pay for employees to actually run so the train. Frustrating because like in an actual, if we were anything that approached a society that like dealt with things ethically and humanely uh, and equitably, then this would be good. Like because it seems like working on trains sucks, and it would be great if we could automate most of that work, uh, and then people less people would have to work in order to keep society running. But that's it, that's Except less people don't have here. to work. Well, less people no. don't get even shittier jobs. Yeah, we're, we we're just we going to run about... through these people's bodies by like as we get up to automation, uh, uh, and then we will throw them away. Yeah, um, well, uh, okay, and then there will, but, but, and then because they'll do it badly, there's going to be a disastrous train crash caused by the fact that they got all of the people off of a train hauling nitroglycerin or whatever, and it's going to destroy I don't know Duluth. Um, which you know, not the worst city to lose, but I I sorry Duluth, y'all are fucked. Well, okay, I, I, it's it's worth mentioning like this stuff, like the automation stuff is already happening, right? Like that yes, well, we have yes. right, we have like this. Well, and, and I mean it's like a very real, real sense. That there's this sort of nightmare. One of the other sort of nightmare things that's going on right now is that there are these like, like I don't know, like driver assistance programs basically that are being run on trains now, where that are that are you know they're supposed to be like making decisions like for and with the drivers, but a they suck ass. Um, B, they're 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 designed they're designed to basically maximize uh designed to maximize profitability, right? And the way you maximize profitability is by running trains really, really slowly. And you know, that's contributing to the fact that every train is fucking late now and the freight system doesn't work. And the third problem is that these is that these things keep fucking running trains off like this is another reason why trains keep fucking crashing is that they suck. Yes. They keep they keep running trains off of tracks. And like, you know, and, and like the, there's 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 like there's there's a lot of shit here, right? Because it's like if if you if you override the system, like you can you can get discipline for, for for overriding the system. But then you have this sort of like you have this thing where it's like, okay, so do I do I get discipline for overriding the system and not making the train crash, or do I just make the fucking train crash? And You're like doing the trolley problem. Yeah, yeah. It's literally yeah, Justin Rogers talked about this. A lot. Like, I it's do. Just like, like, I it's, do love that this is just gonna. Act, this is no. inevitably gonna result in an exact recreation of the trolley problem. It's already like this is already happening to people. It's just like like it's none of the it, none of this stuff works. Automation. The AI is, is, is gonna make bullshit. us crash into like, this orphanage. I can divert it instead. Hit this old folks home. It's like it's literally happening. Like it's just. <laughs> 
Like, none of the stuff, like, okay, the the thing that's, like, frustrating about this, right, is, okay, if any of the people at the sort of, like, at the level of where they're planning these trains could even sort of do their job, right, this isn't even a thing that's, like, an inevitable contradiction between capital and labor, like, this is just, if any of these people could actually fucking schedule the railroads, which is the thing they're supposed to be trying to do, if they could actually schedule when the train was supposed to go and when it was supposed to leave, you wouldn't have these problems because then all of the people who work there would also be told when the fucking train was leaving and they could schedule around it. But no, they can't fucking do it because they're too fucking lazy, they're too fucking stupid, and they don't want to spend the money to actually make any of these systems fucking work. And so the consequence is just this bullshit. And then also because again, and this is everything like that, like capital is also really falling down on the job here because like the rest of capital needs to get their shit together and force the railroad to do something because like it's your asses on the line too, if this railroad thing collapses, but because of, because of the sort of immediate amount of money that the, that these, these shitty rail companies have pumped into Congress, they were able to buy people off and the rest of capital was just like, eh, we don't care. That's like three years out. We don't have to care about this shit. It's like, Guys, like, Bernie Sanders is fighting to save capitalism, right? These people are trying to save you from yourselves. And, you know, you won't won't even let them. That's their entire job, though. Like, of course, it's like, that's that's the entire reason they exist. What what, what is happening here is that, like, is liberalism is running an accelerationist program to, like, cause the American American infrastructure to fall apart. And social democracy is attempting to save capital from itself. And capital was like, literally, fuck you, eat shit. No, it's it's a, I, I've, I've I've I'm reading right now in an interview with a railroad workers united member, and they're they're talking about how like there's this plan to increase uh, uh increase their pay twenty four percent over the next five years, and he's there like he says that um lots of the railroad workers that he's talked to as a part of the union is saying like people are willing to work for less money and take a job at like an Amazon factory or like a trucking job because at least those offer slightly more consistent hours. And like, yeah, like it's, it's at least you, when you're not working, you're not working. Yeah. yeah. And I, I just wanted to mention that up because, because we were bringing up like how these people are getting uh, not very good pay, which is, which is true. But for a lot of people, it, it isn't even just a pay yeah, question. No, it's, it's, it's just overall working conditions. And like when you're, thinking about moving to an Amazon factory instead because they have yeah. better working conditions. Like, oh, God. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I mean, they, they, they've they they've managed to create, like, one of the worst systems that is imposed on, like, any worker in, in the country. Like, it is, it is genuinely stunning. And right now, again, they're, they're getting bailed out that people are st- by the fact that people are stuck in because they want their pensions. But, like... The, but the, as soon as those people are done and we start moving to more autonomous things, then it's not it's not going to be worth it. I know media companies have spent decades trying to convince kids to work for trains with Thomas the Train, Chuggington for for decades and decades. We've tried to send train propaganda to these kids, and I I don't th- I I don't think they're going to buy it. Yeah, I also hey, I, I, did. You guys know that in Thomas the Tank Engine, canonically World War II happened, and canonically all of the diesel engines signed sided with the Nazis. <laughs> Well, that does it for us today. Any that, that, that is official Thomas the Tank Engine lore. Oh, God. I wonder how many other Zoomers will um, sympathize with me on this. I recently found out that Thomas the Train wasn't just the uncanny train segments. They used to have live-action actors in, like, little intercut yeah. Oh, yeah. scenes. Yeah. No, and, and it, it was fucked up. It was by, no good. 
by, by the time Thomas the Train was airing on television when I was a kid, all of those were re-edited. They had they had no, they had no live action s- s- segments at all. It was all the weird stop motion animation, uh, which is still very uncanny with like the faces. But I had no idea until like a year ago that there was live mm-hmm. action actors in the original ed- ed- editions of Thomas the Train. Completely oblivious. Well, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad we could have this important union discussion. <laughs> I, I am too. I'm gonna I'm gonna admit to you all right now. There was a moment earlier where, Chris, you kept saying that that the owners of the railroads were blinded. And I very nearly went into a bit where I just started reading the lyrics to Bruce Springsteen's uh, Blinded by the Light. But I didn't do it. I didn't do it. We, we well, thank I'm, you for I'm, that. I'm Robert. glad we were saved from that. That's, that's, that's because everybody, nobody, nobody gets the lyrics to that one right because of the Manfred Mann's Earth Band version, which makes it sound like he's saying douche when he's really saying deuce and talking about an engine which is why it would have been relevant to railroads but none of y'all would have gotten that and you would have fucking made a big thing about it on reddit so to hell with you all anyway support rail workers if they do an illegal strike make sure we set up things to, so that they get protected and they get food mm-hmm. and yeah and things go to, fight yeah. cops go make railway like i mean people just, like I just keep it Keep an eye on what's going on, and if it happens, there will be ways. There will be ways to support these. Overthrow people. the U.S. government, <laughs> like I don't know things of this nature. Yeah, I mean that would be that that would be nice. But if we got to put a pin in that, you know, keep an eye on the situation, and if these people go on strike, there will be community resources and whatnot popping up to support the wildcat strike. It's a thing that's happened before. Wildcat strikes have a long history in this country too. Um, you know, and we will we will be collecting resources if that happens for ways people yeah. can help with the wildcatters. So this is a thing to have on the old on the old noggin as we as we lurch forward into the holidays and uh, possibly a gigantic labor battle. We'll see. And I, like people in the UK have been doing rail strikes, uh, like for a. A, a good part of this year like they've been they've been there's been on and off rail strikes for most of for like for like the most of the past few months mm-hmm. um it's possible except mm-hmm. again they're, they're they're the british so they stopped doing the strike when the queen died well, well of course so well, yeah look <laughs> look there's certain realities that can't ever be a eclipsed regardless yeah of politics, but here, here's the thing know? here's the thing we we have thrown off the shackles of the anglos our where all rail strike stops for no one mm-hmm. all right <laughs> except all right. for the most pro-labor president joe biden all right and that's now, the episode yeah it's the episode and remember if you see a diesel train it is a nazi you you are obliged to punch it The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com schedule release to learn more. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to $1,500 again sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in Ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park that's 1-800-GAMBLER Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Welcome to Dick It Happened Here, a podcast about it happening somewhere else. Uh, you know, okay, the theme, <laughs> the theme of this show has gone slightly, slightly off the rails since it was first conceived. However, comma, I, d- I do think this is something that is very important to talk about, which is getting some more sort of background information and an understanding of what the history of sort of labor and general protest is in China as we look at the certain the sort of current protest wave that is going on there. And with me to talk about this is Eli Friedman, who teaches at Cornell University and is the author of the book, The Urbanization of People, The Politics of Development, Labor Markets and Schooling in the Chinese City. So Eli, welcome to the show. It's good to be here. Yeah, so I'm I'm excited to talk with you about this, um, partially because I think. Okay, so in in so far as you've gotten sort of mainstream coverage of it, there's been a lot of focus, um, in in in, ter- in terms of the sort of current wave of protests, there's been a lot of focus on, like the A4 paper stuff, and people sort of, you know, hanging signs up and. As as the coverage has gone on, there's been a lot less about the Foxconn stuff. There's been a lot less about the broader trajectory of what protests has looked like in China in the last 20 years as everyone sort of like immediately reaches back for their stock Tiananmen comparisons, which <laughs> I don't think are very good. Or wrong. Um, yeah, yeah. So I, I guess I guess we could in some sense start with Tiananmen because I think this is this is has nothing really to do with it, but I guess we could start with why why are the Tiananmen comparisons bad and why is everyone still reaching for them 30 years later? Yeah. I mean, there there's maybe a couple of reasons why. So um, the, uh, the, the, the unsympathetic take on it is that you have a lot of people outside of China, particularly in the United States, who uh, hope for things to go poorly 
in China yeah. as part of our <laughs> imperial competition. And yeah. so uh, 1989 was uh, a bad year for China, uh, whichever side of, of that movement you, you were on. Uh, and so they they believe that it heralds you know the the downfall of the Communist Party and and you know therefore America can march into the rest of the century uh, without any real competitors. So that that is a real thing, right? Um, and the I, I think the somewhat more sympathetic uh, take on this is that the Chinese government and particularly under Xi Jinping sets a ridiculously high standard for what qualifies as social stability, right? So minor deviations from um, absolute harmony as conceived of by the state, which means, you know, no street protests. It means relatively little dissent online. And to the extent that you do see forms of collective action, they remain pretty small scale and fractured. Um, And so when you see deviations from that, that suggests that, well, they've kind of lost control because they do want to maintain this you know, absolute image of placidity. Um, And if we look at the whole sequence of events that led up to where we are now, I think we have to trace it back. Well, there's a bunch of things, but one of them is the Satong Bridge protest, um, which is just a single person hanging banners off a bridge uh, in Beijing. Um, And a single person hanging banners or Uh, holding signs in any other uh, big city around the world does not create that kind of uh, a stir, right? (laughs) I mean, you know, you're you're in Washington, D.C. or or you're in in Berlin or or Tokyo or whatever, you know, nobody cares, right? So that, but that just shows a little bit of a crack in the system. And so then people let their imaginations kind of run wild. Um, And we're clearly not in a 1989 situation right now. It's not inconceivable that it would develop in that way in the future, um, at the same time, I, I don't think it's particularly likely for, for all sorts of reasons, and we can get into that if you want. Yeah, I mean, w- one of the things that I think, I don't know, w- one of the things that I've been looking at with these protests versus 1989, I, partially it's just the, the the sort of class composition is just very, very different. Like there are student protests, but it's, it's they're, like these people, these, the students now like are not the 1989 students. Like this is just a, this is a very different sort of like it's it's a very different student body. It's a very different like the, the class composition of those people are different. The, the the experience that they've had in the Chinese system is very different. And then also, I think somewhat more interestingly is like it's it's not the same working class that showed up in 1989 because that class doesn't really exist anymore. And yeah, and I guess that that's another part of this that I think. I don't know. There is definitely extent to which these protests are weird in that it is like it's 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 a bunch of people in different places who are protesting about the same thing, which hasn't which, you know, hasn't really happened for a long time. But also like, I don't know, there seems to be this reluctance to talk about the fact that there have been like not insignificant protests in the last 30 years, like especially in the 90s, there are these huge protests against sort of uh, like deindustrialization, like the destruction of sort of the Chinese welfare system. And I guess one of the things I'm interested, I don't know, in asking you more about is like, there's there's a kind of trajectory of what urban sort of protest has looked like, and like as 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 the sort of like as the Chinese working class has like increasingly become a, a, a sort of migrant working class, and so yeah, I guess 
we could jump off from there to also also I guess because that's the other thing is like Chinese cities are very different now than they were 30 years ago which is a thing that is mm-hmm. both incredibly obvious and also like people don't really seem to understand very well <laughs> yeah let's see there's a lot in that question maybe we should circle back around uh to the question of the class composition yeah. of the students and the workers today in comparison to 1989 but first let's just talk a little bit about the sequence of labor protest over the past in the, yeah, let's sorry, say the that post- was, there's a lot of me going through stuff there yeah i mean all all really important insights um each deserving a little bit of their own attention. So, you know, after 1989, uh, there's this big divergence in the um, in in the opportunities that are afforded to the two constituent groups that were in Tiananmen Square and other places around China. So you have the students and you have the workers, right? And there's there's other people, but like th- th- that's the the sort of the, the social backbone of that movement. Uh, the students uh, basically get this deal with the state, which is uh, they demand compliance and political acquiescence in exchange for which they will enjoy a couple of uh, generations, uh, a couple of decades of unbelievably fast growth. And if you are graduating with a degree from one of these uh, elite universities in Beijing or even not super elite universities in, in other cities, there's a pretty good chance that you're going to experience upward social mobility, that you'll be able to buy an apartment, that you know you will feel more materially secure than was the case for your parents, right? Um, I think that that deal is coming undone right now, which in part yeah. explains <laughs> the students that we see out in the street. Um, but in any event, that that certainly was the case for for you know for about 30 years after um, or at least you know 25 years after after Tiananmen. The workers who were in the square in 1989 had a, a almost diametrically opposed yeah. social trajectory <laughs> because immediately thereafter uh, they were subjected to a brutal regime of privatization, of dispossession, of theft of public property. They were thrown out of these jobs that they had believed they were going to have forever. It was called the Iron Rice Bowl. Um, one of the main architects of that was Jiang Zemin, who's just died. Uh, he along with Zhu Rongji. I saw, I saw, I saw a great quote where someone was like, "This is basically China's George W. Bush, where everyone's remembering him yes. fondly because things are so bad now." But oh my god, this guy was awful. Like yeah, di- dying, I mean, dying right now is maybe the best thing he ever did. Like it's yeah. Oh god, and it, it it really is a testament to how bad things are now. But he is, I think. Um, the most neoliberal anyway of China's leaders, yeah. more so than, than Deng Xiaoping in some important ways. Uh, and so, you know, that old working class who was told that they were the masters of the nation, um, you know, under Jiang Zemin for, in the late 90s, they were just they, they were they were just subjected to these real subsistence crises. And in response to that, actually, the largest mobilizations to have happened since 1989 occurred in in the late 90s and really the early 2000s. In some cases, you had these protest movements with many tens of thousands of people out in the street resisting privatization, resisting the theft of their pensions, um, and and basically this, you know, private uh, profiteering and and theft of public property. And and, and I think that even the protests that we've seen uh, in the last uh, week or two um, are are still not on the scale of those yeah. worker uprisings that we saw um, twenty years ago. Yeah, which I guess you know, like part part of the reason why we are where we are now is that those people lost, and and I think that's been one of the other sort of themes of like Chinese protests is like I mean I I think like like some some of the local ones like win, but the large scale ones have kind of just been like just like really just been getting owned for the last like 
20 yeah. uh, really like 30 years like it's it's been kind of a bleak march and i mean i, I actually i, I want to circle back around a bit to talk a bit more about the deindustrialization because i think this is a thing that like really is badly understood especially on the left um the, the other thing I, I wanted to talk about in 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 that is okay so you you have this massive wave of privatization you have this deindustrialization and can we talk a little bit also about how like for for the people for the people who held on in state owned industries what the sort of transformations that happened inside there was yep. like because i think that's also like not understood well yeah, so you have two processes. One is um, the uh, they talk about as, as smashing the iron rice bowl, right? And and that involves two processes. One is just unemployment, and there's been a lot of um, efforts to try to estimate how many people lost their jobs. It is very hard. A political yeah. scientist named uh, Dorothy Salinger wrote an article called Why It's Impossible to Know How Many Unemployed People There Are, or some, something to that effect. Um, but certainly tens of millions of people lost lost their jobs and were just kind of thrown out into the market. And it's worth remembering that they were thrown out into the market largely in regions where the market was not at all dynamic, right? So in the northeastern part of the country, which did not have the booming economy of Guangdong province or, you know, Jiangsu province or places like that. Um, so, so there were those people. You know, people also probably know that there are still a lot of state-owned enterprises and something like a quarter to you know, maybe a third of China's economy is still accounted for by state-owned enterprises. But those enterprises have increasingly come to function like capitalist enterprises, at least with respect to, to labor relations. They still receive a lot of subsidies from the state. They still enjoy um, monopolies, right? So they, you know, they, they don't face uh, competition from other firms, at least domestically. Um, and like monopoly-based firms in capitalist countries, they offer somewhat better um, pay and somewhat better benefits to their core workforce, right? So, I mean, if you think uh, of, of GM or Ford in the middle of the 20th century in the United States, or you can think about Facebook or Google today, you know, these companies that are also basically enjoy monopoly position, their core workers enjoy, you know, somewhat better pay, right? But the other thing that's happened is they have increasingly come to be surrounded by a very large a contingent of temporary and flexible workers, yeah. right? Um, and so in, in, in many of these state-owned firms, um, more than 50% of the employees are the well, what they call in China dispatch workers, right? They don't enjoy any of those same benefits. They don't enjoy the same job stabilities. Um, and they, in, in response to market fluctuations and profitability, those are always the first ones to, to be let, uh, let go, right? So, you know, the fact that they are state-owned, I think, matters to some extent. Um, but when you, but it doesn't mean that this, the old labor regime from, you know, the 1970s has kind of continued unchanged. Like they are being, these firms are being subjected to market pressures and that's reflected in how they treat labor. Yeah. And I mean, that's something that like, if, 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 if you, if you listen to Xi Jinping, like actually talk about what's going <laughs> on, he, he, he just constantly, every, every like two speeches that he gives, there is a line about how like the, 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 the economy is directed by the market and like, Oh, yeah. that, no, he, yeah. he's very clear about it. And yeah. in, in some ways he's, he's like very Reaganite. Like he's just yeah. like, we don't, we don't want to let these lazy people just enjoy welfare benefits. Like they believe in the power of the market to discipline people. There's no question about it. Yeah. And, and I guess the, the, the other sort of consequence of this is China's enormous migrant worker population. And that's, that's the other thing I wanted to talk about because that was another round of protest that happens in the two thousands. That's about uh, this, giant fight over household registration that I, I guess was the last kind of successful, like really mass protest thing in China. Can we talk about that a little bit? 
Yeah, I mean, there haven't been the same scale of of collective protests by migrant workers, but um, you know, just as a little bit of background, you have the, the old state state owned uh, working class is kind of declining or subjected to the market pressures that, that we're talking about, and so unrest um, in that sector becomes a little bit less significant over the course of the two thousands. But that's happening at precisely the same time that the working class in the private firms is increasingly constituted by these rural to urban migrant workers. When they come to, to the cities, they are treated essentially as second-class citizens and don't have guaranteed access to all kinds of social services, health care, pensions, uh, education, et cetera. Um, and so there is a lot of mobilization. I mean, you know, the the HUCO household system, uh, household registration system still exists and it still has an important role in structuring people's um, uh, classed experiences. Um, but it's it's a little bit less coercive than it used to be. So in 2003, there was this famous case, um, a migrant named uh, Sunjirgang um, was taken into custody, uh, as frequently happened, you know, at the time, like police would just ask people for their papers on the street if they looked suspicious. And they had a, a thing in place at the time called uh, custody and repatriation, where they would take you into custody and they would they would repatriate you back to your village, right? Yeah. So very similar, you know, to like ice raids, um, yeah, <laughs> but against Chinese of, people, yeah, yeah. Like they had, you know, this is I think one of the things about like it, 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 insofar as you can make comparisons between like the Chinese system and the Soviet system, is like that. That's one of the few things that was I think kind of similar is that you do have these. Very intense. In, well, okay. It's simultaneously, you have these very intense, like internal restrictions on migration, but also very similar to the U.S. system. It's like the the, the economy is based on everyone breaking these things, That's but right. simultaneously, <laughs> it's illegal. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. Like, we, there's no illegal immigration to the United States, but the economy would obviously collapse without undocumented workers. And it's exactly the same in China. Like, you know, they're like, we we know that these people are here. We know that our economy, particularly in the coastal cities, is completely dependent on them. But we're still going to have cops ask you for your papers on the street. And if they don't like you, they can, you know, round you up and send you home. In this In this particular case, back in 2003, the guy they got... It's like he was the quote unquote wrong guy because he was actually a university student and they 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 detained him and um, killed him. And so when this came out and they're like, oh, they killed a, a college student. Like if had they killed a normal migrant worker, that'd be one thing. Uh, but he's a college student. So uh, so that created a big fuss. And as a result, you know, they actually got rid of of detention and repatriation, which is good. Um, there and so migrant workers today, when they're on the streets in the big cities, are are not likely to you know just have cops randomly ask them yeah. to see their papers. But they're still subjected to all kinds of of social discrimination and definitely um, you know institutional discrimination. Yeah. So okay, we're we're spe- speaking of institutional discrimination. We're going to take an ad break and then we will come back and talk <laughs> more about this. <laughs> so you know, enjoy some ads from companies who are probably benefiting from all of this. And we're back. So, okay, that that's another thing that I, I, I do want to sort of, I, I guess, use this to push us forward a little bit, which is that, okay, th- this this is obviously skipping a lot of riots in 2011, but one of the big things about the COVID restrictions that I don't think people understand has been how bad it's been affecting American workers and the extent to which, you know, because one, one of the things about the household registration system is like, as best I can tell, this is this is the way a lot of like a lot of resources in terms of like here's how you're getting food 
haven't been distributed. And if, you know, if you're in a place that's not where House of Registration is, it's like, well, okay, the state's not giving you your food. How are you going to deal with this stuff? And yeah, they're not yeah, telling you. That, 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 that's been a big thing that, like, I don't know. I, but a lot of this has been me being upset with the media coverage of these protests because, like, people will just say COVID zero and then not explain what the actual consequences of this are. So, yeah. yeah, I was wondering if we could talk about sort of specifically how how the lockdowns, especially as lockdowns have gone on, have been affecting migrant workers and then how that's – and, and I, uh, yeah, okay. So we'll start start there before I jump into yeah. a question with 700 parts. I, I mean, I, I do think it's really important to understand why people are opposed to zero COVID. And sometimes for people outside of China, they think back to the spring of 2020 when – you know, in the United States, we had like libertarians with guns being like yeah. in the lockdown, like we want our freedom. Like it is not that for all sorts of reasons. Um, and and the way to get at why it's different is to understand some of the, the, the class differences that zero COVID has has entailed. And I should just say it's been pretty terrible for everybody, including rich people. And like, you know, we can yeah. we can feel some sympathy for them, too. Um but but it's had some particularly nefarious consequences for for migrant workers. This became really clear in the Shanghai lockdown. It's also worth noting that there are 300 million yeah. migrant workers in China. Like, so this is not like a rousing yeah, error or anything. This, this is like half the population of Europe. Like yeah, that's, yeah, that's how exactly. many people we're talking about here. It's absurd. Yeah, it's, it's almost an America-sized population yeah. of, of people who are not living where their household registration is. And so the, the basic thing is, as you were just sort of saying, that when there is a lockdown and you are a migrant worker – you you kind of don't exist from the the states or you might exist but like you might also be overlooked from the perspective of the state so one very concrete way that this um screwed people over was in these hard lockdowns you're not allowed out of your house and you're dependent on uh, the neighborhood committee which is which is connected to the state it's kind of the lowest level of the state you were dependent on them for the delivery of everything that you need to survive right critically food uh, and, and medicine yeah can i want to back up and say something about this yeah. this is something this is something very very different than the american lockdowns which is like well okay it it it, it, it depends on a like it, it it depends on a on on like a province by province basis like i know my family yeah. was in inner mongolia they like in inner mongolia like you you just you like it, the, the lockdown isn't like you don't go to work. The lockdown is you cannot leave your house. Like you can, yeah. you can say, I think, I think their lockdown, their first one was one person in their house once a week can leave to go get groceries. But it's like, it's not like, yeah, like it, it, it's, it's you, like you physically cannot leave. You will be, if you attempt to leave, you will be prevented from doing so. And this means that you don't really have an independent way of like getting food or like going shopping or. That's right. Yeah. Like getting I don't know, like toilet paper, like yeah, no toilet paper. I mean, that yeah. resonates with uh, with Americans and our and our toilet paper shortage of 2020. But I mean, in some cases, like people would actually just be literally chained into their apartments, yeah. right? So like th- this is not whatever people in 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 the U.S. or even even in parts of Western Europe, you know, where the lockdowns were a little bit more intensely policed. Like it is not that. It is a qualitatively different thing, and so. Yeah, you're completely dependent on the state. So therefore, it's really, really important that the state know that you are there and that the state feels itself to be tasked with your survival. And if you're a migrant worker, so so one of the, the very concrete ways that this affected migrant workers is that a lot of them live in informal housing, even in the biggest cities, even in places like Shanghai and Beijing. 
because those are the only places that they can live. As far as the state's concerned, like that informal housing might not exist. There are very, very frequently more people living in those dwellings than are sort of legally accounted for. So, you know, like there's 10 people living in an apartment that's supposed to be for for, you know, a family of three. And so they deliver three people's worth of food, but there's actually 10 people living there. That's a subsistence crisis, right? Um, you know, the medical stuff is just a, yeah. is like oh astonishing God. and very harrowing. I mean, you know, just people just dying in their apartment because like they can't get insulin or, or, yeah. or all I, kinds of I, other I, things. I know, I know people whose family died because they had cancer and they couldn't get treatment for it because – Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. it's a disaster. Yeah. So, so that's, that's the situation. That's one of the problems with them for the migrant workers. And then in the very intense lockdowns, at least in, in Shanghai back in, in the uh, spring of this year, um, you know, they also can't leave. So like one option would be like, okay, will you go back to the place where you do have your household registration, you know, back in the village and you have a piece of land and like you can survive. They couldn't leave, right? There's no transportation. Um, and so they were trapped in this situation where they couldn't work. The government wasn't, de- you know, delivering them food and they couldn't go to some place, some other place where, where they could get food. And so, uh, you know, there's been a lot of attention to these recent protests, which are extremely important and qualitatively different. But even back in, in April 2020, yeah. we saw food riots like in Shanghai, a group of group of migrant workers just like requisitioned uh, like a truck full of cabbage, you know, and just started like tossing cabbages to people on the street because people were were like literally starving. So, I mean... Yeah, so it's a real problem for, for the migrant workers. And on that note, this has been It Could Happen Here. Uh, join us tomorrow for part two of this episode where we'll be talking more about lockdowns, some more problems with migrant workers, and this all going. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to $1,500 again sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in Ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park that's 1-800-GAMBLER Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful Beauty. 
Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at meaningfulbeauty.com. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, the podcast that you're listening to right now. Uh, it's your host, Christopher Wong, and we are back with part two of our interview with Eli Friedman about the recent protests in China. I, I want to go back and talk about lying flat and that whole kind of, I don't know, movement discourse that was happening last year, because it, it seems like the, the, the kind of, I don't know if nihilism is the right word, but this kind of like collective understanding that the whole sort of bargain of the Chinese social system of, you know, and this was to some extent extended to everyone, right? Like the, the bargain of the Chinese social system of every, everyone keep your head down, we'll all get rich together. It suddenly became clear that this just wasn't going to happen. And, you yeah. know, I mean, I, I think like in, in, in some sense, it's possible to sort of like, you know, you can you can put on your sort of like hard materialist hat and you can like look at like the number of hammers banging out and you can just look at the sort of Chinese GDP graph over the last decade and be like, mm-hmm. OK, well, so eventually like when it, when it, when it, when it hit like two percent, eventually we were going to have protests. But, yeah, I, I guess I guess I, I, I wanted to talk a bit about like. Yeah, what, what lying flat was? We we covered this on the show a long time ago when it was happening, but and then also sort of how that attitude shift was important or wasn't important. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it wasn't. <laughs> I think it was, but yeah, I I think it's very important, right? So yeah, you can't just be a crude materialist and like mechanically read social protest off of some chart of you know falling profitability or something like that. Um, but there, it, it is a cultural expression of real fundamental changes in the organization of the Chinese economy. Uh, you know, we already talked about how the post-89 generation was like, you go to college and like you come out and, you know, you'll, you'll be middle class, right, on average. And that's just not at all the case anymore. And young people in China and, and older people, middle-aged people, you know, who, are, who have children who are, who are going through the system um, feel immense pressure in like immense competition in all spheres of life, beginning from a young age in elementary school, all the way up through high school, through the super competitive and intense university admissions process. And then after graduating university and getting a job and then getting a job that can, you know, um, uh, you can earn enough money to be able to afford an apartment. And so here we have to understand, you know, the cost of housing and all of the other costs associated with social reproduction. So the co- like the cost of care workers, right? If middle-class people in, in places like Shanghai and Beijing expect to have domestic workers, um, you know, looking after their children, they expect to be able to hire tutors who can, um, you know, who can tutor their children in, in English or in math. Um, and so just people feel under unbelievable pressure. And this is in a situation that part of the, the reason that the, the, the pressure has is really ramped up is that there are fewer um, good paying jobs. You know, youth unemployment now in China is, is around 20%. Um, and so one of the responses to that is just forget about it. We're, you know, we're going to lie flat. Uh, we're going to, we're going to reject all of this. There's different expressions and I don't actually, the, the, the sort of like, you know, sociologist in me is like, well, we don't actually have numbers to know how many people are, are lying flat. And like, that is true. Like maybe most people are still just going to work and, and, you know, doing their job, but there's enough, you know, stories and certainly in terms of cultural resonance of people just doing the bare minimum at work or working for short periods of time, earning just enough money to survive and not worrying about meeting those kind of social expectations around 
buying a car, buying an apartment, getting married, having kids, because people just see it as, as kind of, as kind of hopeless. Um, and so I think that's a really important backdrop because we have to understand at some level that these protests are about a sense of hopelessness, right? Be it economic opportunities, be it the a political system where Xi Jinping is going to reign as long as he wants, or be it zero COVID where, you know, at any given moment, you're going to be locked inside your apartment and you're not going to be able to see your friends or, or do anything. So, um, yeah, so I think it's very relevant. Yeah. And, and I, I wanted, I guess, also to, this is something I talk about on this podcast a lot, but I need to like, I want you to like drill into people's heads, like just the sheer amount that people in China are working just like like the, the the number of hours, the number of days a week, the the amount of effort that is being put in is like it it, it is it, it 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 is it is a level of raw surplus value extraction that like yeah. uh, like like mo- most places in the world haven't seen in like a quarter like in, in like half a century. It is like or even longer than that. Like it is it is a a truly stunning like. Is a truly stunning level of exploitation in terms of things like 996, in terms of the people who are working schedules that are way worse than that, who don't really ever get like talked about because they're not tech workers or they're not people who have sort of like a platform Chinese society. Yeah. yeah. It's it's extremely like, normalized, you know. I mean, like the the nine nine six thing, which which first of all, it, it is maybe worth mentioning that China legally has a forty hour work week. You're only allowed to work thirty six hours of overtime a month, right? So probably you know not more than forty nine or fifty hours a week. That's that's like the legal yeah the, the legal standard. Nobody even remotely pretends like that is a thing in any industry. There's legal debates about like whether it applies to to professional white collar you know salaried workers or not. But um, you know when the nine nine six thing came out and there was a pretty cool I think movement based mostly online uh, among tech workers. It was it was great. It was very inspiring and also every single blue collar worker. <laughs> In yeah, China was like, like we've been working nine six for decades, you know, um, and so so it is it is very normal across these these different kinds of uh, of stratum for sure. Um, one of the the cool things about nine eight six is people were 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 revolting against it and saying yeah. like this is an unacceptable way to live. And again, it comes back to this whole thing of like all of these feelings of you know these enhanced pressures, right? Where it's just like. How do I live in this city? How do I find like decent housing? Like if, you know, if I want to have like a social life, which is a thing that some people in their twenties want to have, you know, like, how do I do that? It's impossible under those circumstances. Um, so, so I, again, like you, you can't read these movements mechanically off of these, these, uh, these structural changes, but like that is a thing that has been happening that is unresolved. It's not at least for the, you know, the, the, the blank paper protesters, the kind of the more elite students and stuff, they haven't specifically articulated um, their grievances as labor demands. Um, but it's it, it's at least an important backdrop to what's happening today. Yeah. And I think it's I remember like. Oh, I think I think this was like mid 2019. I'm trying to remember when I when I saw this specific video. But there, 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 there was a video from the Hong Kong protests that was like, in some ways, it was, it was like literally one of these classic, like, like sort of Twitter things about like, what do you want out? What do you want to do after the revolution? And it was like, most of it was like, I want to start a bakery. 
Like, I want to work in a library. And, yeah. and it, 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 it strikes me that there's these things that get subsumed under, you know, when when when, when you see a pro-democracy movement, right? When, when you see, you know, like the, the sort of, well, I, I, I guess that there's something interesting too here about the, like, like day one of the protest, there were a lot of videos that were talking about Iran and that kind of seemed to like, like the, the very early videos were about sort of solidarity with the protest in Arunchi and then like, it was like it was like specifically tying that to Iran and then to sort of pro democracy demands, and then later on you get the sort of like, uh, like the the, the Shanghai like down with the party, down with Xi Jinping, like we want democracy yeah. and free speech stuff. But it, it it strikes me that like a lot of the times when you see people making those demands, it's because they think that like you know it's like there there there's a whole set of de- of of like things that they like things that they believe about the future and about what will happen in the future that are like not articulated in the demands. But if you talk about, if you talk about them, like if you talk to people about what they think is going to happen after that, there's this whole sort of like opening up of social stuff that they think will be yeah. the, like the necessary results of like the end of the one party state. And it's like, you know, and on one hand, like, I, I don't know. I, I had this debate a lot with like, like there, there's a specific kind of like Chinese international student you get in the U S who like, comes to the U.S. and is, like, Im- immediately, like, enormously enamored with the U.S. It's, it's, it's sort of the mirror image of how we, 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 we have a bunch of people who are, like, incredibly enamored with the Chinese state. And then right. you get people who come here and are, like, incredibly enamored with the American state. And it's like, well, yeah, okay, the, the, this politician will see you and they will talk to you. However, comma, in about two years, they will be voting to throw you in prison. So, like, you know, <laughs> but, like obviously, like... Both pe- people in China understand the Chinese system sucks and that the promises that people like in the U.S. believe about it are fake. And then people in the U.S. understand that you can get a multi-party democracy and things can still be absolutely shit. But right. yeah, yeah, you know, it, it strikes me that there, there's a lot of stuff sort of embedded in, in, in these demands that are like not really explicitly articulated until later. And, and that's also, I guess, been a, a hard part about these protests is that like – I don't know. It's hard to get information out. You can get short interviews with people. Mostly what you're getting are like 30 seconds of footage of people yelling at a cop. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot going on. Like if you have this one, this tiny little opening and then instantly you have protests in like all of these cities all over the country, dozens of universities protest among you know, working class migrants, like middle class people in Shanghai, like, uh, you know, all, all across the country, like that suggests that people have a variety of sets of grievances and they're kind of funneling them through this this meta narrative around ending the lockdown, which is not to diminish the significance of the actual lockdowns, which are, are ca- causing real human suffering. But there's definitely a lot going on. And, you know, one of the big ones is what's happening in Xinjiang. Like it, it, it's we still don't really know how Uyghurs are feeling about all yeah. of this. The fact that like all of the, all the protests in, in the big Eastern cities are about commemorating what happened in Urmchi uh, in a fire that killed mostly, if not exclusively Uyghurs, like that, that, that deserves to be talked about. Um, I, we don't really know how like the Han people on the streets in the Eastern cities, like if they're thinking about this, this backdrop of, you know, massive repression, surveillance, and and mass internment of of Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities, um, but that's another thing. Uh, and, and and I think the same thing goes for the treatment of migrant workers in in Foxconn and these other um, blue collar workers who are put into the closed loop. Like, to what extent 
are urban um, Han people still kind of willing to go along with sacrificing migrant workers and treating them as as, as second class citizens, or is there a possibility of developing some real sense of of solidarity um, with ending not just the closed loop, but ending you know like hukou based discrimination, ending the camps in Xinjiang? You know, I mean, you can kind of spin out from there if if you are interested in thinking about what it would mean to democratize China in like a in a robust sense of the word. I think points out another thing about these protests that are complicated, right, which is that, like, they are cross-class in a lot of ways, but I don't know. It, it seems to me like the way they're manifesting is very much down-class lines. Like, okay, I, I, I genuinely don't understand what's going on in Guangzhou. That, like, every single video I see out of Guangzhou is, like, 70 people throwing bottles at a cop. And, like, yep. every video I see out of, like, Shanghai is, like, six people holding a piece of paper but it very much seems like, you know, like when, 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 when the cops are getting to like these these sort of like these working class neighborhoods, these neighborhoods that are like a informal housing, these neighborhoods that are full of migrant workers, there are these really, really intense conflicts with the police in ways that like kind of aren't happening. Well, I mean, OK, that's like that kind of stuff seems to be happening in a room. And I, th- I think it's happening there partially because, of the you know, this is like, I, well, OK, I don't know off the top of my head whether that's more militarized than Tibet. But like one of the most militarized, like one of the most heavily policed places in China, and then also people are just really like the the, the immediate and palpable anger seems to be the highest there because you know I mean like like it, it you're you're going to be more pissed off when it's people in your city or like you know you you maybe were like three blocks away from this fire, yeah, as it like I kills mean- these people, but. Yeah, one one of one piece about about Urumqi is that they've been in some form of lockdown for like a hundred days. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So it, that's not, and and part of that has to do with the fact that it is this colonial setting where they feel like they can do things to people that they can't do in Beijing and Shanghai. Like people in, in Shanghai are not going to do that, right? It's just yeah. like it's inconceivable. Um, there's obviously a lot of Han people, and Urumqi is actually a majority Han. Yeah, I think it's like seventy percent Han now. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Um, that that sounds right to me. And Xinjiang is is increasingly Han as well, although I, I believe Uyghurs still constitute a plurality. So you know, there, there's just like each the the lockdowns kind of filter down to these different localities and into different communities with their different social and class compositions in different kinds of ways and have different kinds of effects, right? So. You can put people in lockdown uh, in Xinjiang for a hundred days, and they're going to be really pissed when yeah. they get out. In the case of Guangzhou, you know, th- this was also part of the sequence that I think has been written out of the official narrative. It's not; it wasn't just Foxconn. You had the initial Foxconn uh, escape in late October, early November, and then you had these pretty intense riots that happened in Guangzhou. But those were in these urban villages, so-called urban villages, largely informal housing very densely populated that are overwhelmingly migrant workers. In, the, in this case, it was mostly people from Hubei, um, which is which is where Wuhan is. Mm. And um, and so you know, just those migrant communities were put into lockdown in Guangzhou. So if you oh, were over in T- Yeah, if you were over in Tianhe district, which is uh, the sort of the, uh, the the newer, like fancier part of Guangzhou with lots of high rises, um, you know, those places were not under lockdown. Jesus. And so they <laughs> They they put the migrant communities and and I saw some like really not nice stuff you know people just being like oh yeah you know the the local Guangzhou people on the other side of the river are just like going about their life and and they're they're okay with what's happening to the migrants and the migrants were 
as is the case in some of these earlier lockdowns, actually facing real subsistence crisis. Like they didn't mm-hmm. have enough food to eat and they couldn't leave to try to get food. Um, so that's why you saw these super intense riots. And that's why you see them confronting the police and, you know, screaming at them, throwing things at them. You see tear gas, uh, all, all of these things. Yeah, I, th- I, think, so, that's, I think that's the yeah. only place I've seen tear gas so far. Like may, maybe uh, in a room sheet. Yeah. I'm not, I, there, there may have been a video. I, I, don't, I don't remember specifically about a room sheet, but Definitely, like, Guangzhou is the only place I've seen that level of repression. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was, it was I mean, you know, the, the, the Zhengzhou Foxconn was probably the, the most violent and the largest yeah, scale. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, that was, it was a little bit different. In Guangzhou, it's kind of like smaller streets. They're fighting, you know, street by street. So, um, yeah, so they have a different experience of it. People in Shanghai, again, not to minimize uh, their demands. And I think it's, it's important for people to find points of commonality um, uh, against this policy. Um, but it's, you know, it's not like that if, if you're, if you're a middle-class person, uh, Han person, uh, in Shanghai, which is again, not to minimize the, the very real difficulties that those folks have been facing as well. Something this kind of, it, uh, you know, I, I think there, 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 there's like another group of people who we should probably talk about a little bit, which is like this sort of downwardly mobile class of business owners who've been mm-hmm. kind of just getting annihilated by the lockdowns. And this, that, that happened in the U S too, although yeah. the Chinese version of it seems they're like less mar- marginally less absolutely psychotic like they haven't <laughs> tried they, they they haven't tried to like kidnap a governor yet like they, no, they're, no, they're, no. they're not like they're not as fascist as their american counterparts um, fewer guns for sure yeah but it's it's it seems it seems like there, there's a kind of interesting i don't know it, there's there's a class dynamic that kind of reminds me of occupy in that you have this sort of like kind of tenuous alliance between like some some parts of the working class these elite students and like this downwardly mobile middle class but it, it strikes me that you know i mean the the, the, the the sort of defining thing about occupying i think like the defining thing about the whole sort of 2011 2013 wave of protests was that like it was it was really really easy to get people together into a physical space and when when you were in that single physical space, it was like you know it's not it's not like class disappeared, but it was like you know it, it was it was it was it was it was a way in which sort of like classes were mixing, and you could form this new kind of like identity based around like what you're doing in this place. And it doesn't really seem like that's possible here. It really seems like I don't know like it, there, there's these huge like you know it, 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 this this is a protest that is like happening in a lot of different places at the same time, but it's like it doesn't. They're segmented. Yeah, they're segmented. Yeah. They don't and they don't they don't really have a sort of like cohesive social identity that in a way that you could get out of a bunch of people being in the same place. Yeah. No, I, I think that's right. I mean they're spatially segmented. Um something uh someone pointed out on Twitter, I can't even remember who, but they're drawing comparisons to the nineteen eighty nine protests and the kind of the, the physical arrangements where people were living. And so particularly given, you know, the online censorship, like that's been really important. So you have these worker dormitories and Foxconn, like you can organize by actually talking to people yeah, or student dormitories, yeah. right? Um, and then you have much smaller protests among the, you know, the middle class people who are able to circulate things. Um, online. And so the consequence of that is, is they are pretty segmented. And I think, you know, everyone has their own grievance with zero COVID. Yeah. <laughs> but those grievances are actually pretty different, right? So yeah. 
the Foxconn workers don't like the closed loop management system where, you know, where they can't leave or where they're subjected to unsafe conditions, et cetera. Um, you know, the, the, the petty bourgeoisie, like they don't like the fact that there's no foot traffic, you know, coming into their shops. Right. And, um, I don't know if you saw the video of the guy like kicking down the wall with a soup ladle on his yeah, hand. Yeah, yeah. I was um, thinking about that specifically. <laughs> yeah, I mean it was it was very theatrical and, and dramatic and uh and a great video. You know, in terms of like the, the class position, I'm uh, yeah, you can see how it can kind of capsize into fash yeah. pretty quickly. Um and then like the students, uh, you know, they want to be able to live normal student lives and like leave their dormitories, and that's a thing that I think students anywhere can associate with. So it's like, yeah, they're all against the zero COVID policy, but then it's kind of like what are their politics after that? And I think if if this is gonna open up um, you know, some kind of more expansive political vision, like it's going to be hard to maintain that, like that unity, right? The students are already talking about like, you know, censorship, freedom of speech, those things, which I, I support, I think are very good. You're probably not going to get the petty bourgeoisie to like risk arrest and violence with the cops, you know, over like holding up a blank white piece of paper. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and the migrant workers have another whole set of things, you know, around like basic like health infrastructure, like, you know, can they get access to decent health care in the places where they're where, where they're living? And that's not going to resonate to the same extent with the students. So, you know, yeah, yeah. I, the, 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 the one I think about a lot was like there, there, there was a video going around of this guy being like, I don't care about politics. I just want to go to the movies. And I was like, this is the most American person in China. Like th- this is the one person yeah. that I'm like, OK, like, the, you know, and, and like there is that kind of sort of like I just I just want to live my normal life like sure thing that's happening. And then that, that I think is a kind of recognizable American impulse. But then you have the stuff that's like, did, did you see, did you see those pictures that were going around of like the, 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 the hospitals they were putting migrant workers in were just like the, the entire bathroom floor is just like covered in poop. And like, no, oh, oh God, God. it's awful. Yeah. It's like the whole, whole bathroom floors are just flooded. There's like, just like the, 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 they, the, the, you can't flush toilet paper down it. So there's just these like mountains of toilet paper. And, and I think like, Oh, the, the, yeah, it's, it's awful. Like the, the difference between the people whose things are like, I want to go yeah. to the movies and the people whose demand is like, please stop locking me in this like, 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 you know, that, that was, I guess, I guess the, the other sort of lost thing that seemed to be pretty big in Chinese social media that I don't, that wasn't talked about much here was the, the, uh, the, there was this bus that capsized that killed like 27 people who were being taken like to a facility specifically to hold like, you know, this is like one, one of these sort of like, I, I don't even, I, I don't even really want to dignify them by calling them hospitals because they're like, yeah, like just a complete disaster. Um, but where were people were being held, like held because they quarantine had quarantine centers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't know. It, it seems like there, there's a really big sort of like, you know, I mean, I, I guess it's like like the, the 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 protests are reflecting all of all of the sort of like existing class divides in Chinese society in ways yep. that I think are are pretty obvious if you look at it. Which I, I guess in some sense, like th- this, this does strike me as the most Tiananmen-esque thing. Well, look, the most Tiananmen-esque thing about it is the way that the media has been like specifically covering the grievances of exactly like two groups of people, which is like the right. students yeah. and like the petit bourgeois. Right. And then all of the labor stuff has just vanished after about day two. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and I, I mean... I don't have much optimism that 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 the coverage will, will yeah, change, no. <laughs> um, but you know there there is a, an experience um, 
that middle class people, I think, have had pretty acutely going back, at least to the Shanghai lockdown, of this realization that there actually are no limits on state power. Yeah. Right. And that to them was kind of like a shock. You know, they're like, oh, like, I thought I was just going to be able to go about my life, like, as long as I didn't you know, demand to be able to vote for the president. Like I can have a job, I can, um, you know, go eat hot pot or, you know, get whatever kind of delicious food I want living in these big cities. I can travel internationally, you know, all of these things are, are, you know, more or less okay. Um, there's been lots of, you know, there's lots of other people in training society for whom that's never been the experience, right? Yeah. Most importantly, the minorities, uh, and the workers, uh, and, and the migrant workers who have always, you know, experienced that raw, and unchecked power of the state. And so, you know, does, does this have the capacity to, to kind of bring them together? You know, it's going to be extremely difficult to do, especially because there aren't like spaces for political organizing and working through these differences in a constructive way. Yeah. I mean, I, I will say the, the one thing that kind of, that strikes me as something that it like is just different about this cycle. Is it like, I don't know. I, I don't like, I don't think I've, ever seen in my lifetime outside of like really mm. tiny Maoist sex, like people openly calling for the downfall of the government. Yeah. Like just in, in, in a kind of like large systemic way. And like, it, 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 it seems like, I don't know, maybe, maybe the censors will sort of get control back, but it, it really seems like there's been this kind of floodgate that's opened where suddenly like, there was, this, there was this brief moment where, like, it suddenly became possible to talk about things where, you know, like, like two months ago, it was like one guy laid a sign on a bridge and, like, this was this was, like, the biggest thing that had ever happened in Chinese society, whatever, et cetera, et cetera. And then suddenly, like, you know, you just have people on the streets of Shanghai, like, just chanting stuff that wasn't even on that banner. And, like, yeah. I don't know, like, it, 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 it really seems like. Like, it's it's not like they've actually, like, fully lost control of the country or anything. Like, they're not even close to that. But it's, it's like, the, the, the sort of, like, the, the sort of regime of terror and fear that had been in place to keep people from doing this kind of stuff has fallen off a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd be very curious to know what the vibe is like in China. And obviously, I have not been there for a while. Um, but... Like and this is wildly speculative. And if you have any Chinese uh, listeners who want to correct me, I would be glad to to have some more information about this. But my feeling from afar is that you know, like Xi Jinping is just like you you can't you can't say anything about him, and that even in like private spaces, you know, people just like don't feel like the ability to kind of imagine something different, and like that has been changed. Like I don't think. We're going to see a lot more people on the streets chanting down with Xi Jinping, yeah. down with the Communist Party. Like, that's, you know, that, that's a risky, it's a risky thing to do. But I do think that, like, now at least people know that there's other other people in the country that are thinking the same things that they are thinking. And then at least within, you know, like, you know, face-to-face -face interactions that people might be a little bit more willing to kind of say, like, oh, like, these protests happened. That was pretty crazy. Like, let's talk about that. Um, and so, so, so that to me is optimistic. Um, and I do hope that more of this organizing can take place, you know, offline because I think that's the only safe way to do it. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I think something has changed significantly and you see it here, you know, I mean, I've been teaching Chinese students for 10 years. Um, there's no question that people are interested, um, in talking about things now in, in a, in a more open way than was the case a couple of years ago and like here at Cornell we had we had a little vigil for 
um, for Urumqi as well. And people were chanting, you know, down with Xi Jinping, um, which is kind of like, okay, you're, you know, you're in Ithaca, New York, like it's not dangerous. Well, yeah. I, I think students feel it to be dangerous and definitely a month or two ago would have felt it to be quite dangerous. So, yeah. And I, and I guess we, we probably shouldn't like completely downplay the fact that like the CCP has international networks in a way that's for sure. Like it, it, the, the way it tends to get covered in the press is very sort of like this kind of like right wing fear mongering, but it's like, no, these people do exist. And like, yeah, like it, it is possible for you to like tweet something while you're in the U S and then like someone in China finds out about it and things start to go very badly for you very quickly. And yeah, that's for sure. Know, like that's, that's a, that's a real danger that. Yeah. And, and regardless of, of how many spies there are, how pervasive they are, like it is a real experience, a real fear that Chinese students yeah. here have, right? They don't feel comfortable, you know, they might feel more comfortable speaking openly here than they do actually within China, but they still don't feel totally free. And, and that is a very widespread sentiment. I guess sort of in closing, I don't know, my, I don't think anyone can really have much of an analysis that's better than them guessing about what's going to happen next because this already was something that like two weeks ago like if you'd ask anyone like anyone in china or outside of china who wasn't like i don't know like in the Falun gong or something whether whether they were suddenly <laughs> going to be large still like protesting china everyone would have been like are you nuts yeah but yeah i'm, I'm wondering how what you think is going to happen next i don't know my 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 sort of tentative read of it was like it it, it seems like i don't know it, it it seems to me that for for a very very long time the chinese political system was specifically set up to stop this like like this this was the exact thing it was it was designed to make sure there would never be another sort of like like there, there would never be a a, a large well, you know, we don't know how how long this is going to go on, right? But there, there was there was never there was never supposed to be another street movement that was like coordinated between cities that was large and that had real political demands. And yeah. you know, I like I I I don't know. I maybe maybe I could I could be the most wrong I've ever been, but I I cannot imagine this like this specific round of protests really like challenging the government at all. Like I don't know. Some something something would have to like I don't know, like aliens would have to like descend from the sky or something like I, I don't know. I don't, yeah. I don't like I don't I don't think they can do it. But the frequency at which these kinds of things break out has been increasing steadily for the past probably 20 or 30 years. I mean, you know, the 90s are sort of a low point for this stuff. But, you know, like if, if you're if you're in a country like Ecuador, right, you've seen like two pretty large scale like mass street movements in like three years. Right. And, you know, it's, 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 it seems to be sort of broadly the, the, there's, there, there's, there's been this sort of like the, 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 the decaying economic conditions have combined with this, like de de the general decaying ability of the state to prevent like a subsequent movement from, from unfolding. And so I don't know, like I, 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 I my, my sense is that this one's not going to do anything, but we might see another one of these in like three years or something. Yeah, I don't think we're going to see this movement in the in the weeks and months to come to like cohere into this like massive politically potent force that has the capacity to either continue to exert demands on the central state or threaten state power. Like, I don't think that that's going to happen. Um, 
I do think I think I think the first thing is to acknowledge and to chalk up the victories that have already been um, won. Yeah. So Foxconn Foxconn workers got paid. You know, they went out yeah, and they, they rioted. Like ten thousand workers, something like yeah. that. Yeah. Foxconn's <laughs> like, here's ten thousand yuan for you to leave, yeah. not even for you to do your job. <laughs> Right. So like and those were workers that came in after the other workers escaped. So they yeah. had been there in quarantine for like a couple of days, rioted, got 10,000 yuan, which is like almost 1500 US dollars. Like they so, so they did really well. Um, and but I think more broadly, you know, around the zero covid, the government has already made changes. They will never acknowledge we're doing this because yeah. people protested like yeah. that's not how they operate. But um you know, they said, OK, we're actually going to get more serious about vaccinating people, which is what they need to do in order to have sort of a, a, an exit strategy. There have been some some signals, low key ones about further loosening. I mean, I think that there's a real question about how they go about doing this, because if they just let it rip tomorrow, like actually hundreds of thousands of, oh, millions yeah, of people will die. Yeah. Yeah. So like I think that what they need to do is they need to vaccinate people and they need to build a real public health infrastructure that includes migrant workers. But, you know, that's. We'll see if that happens. So, so I think that those are already victories, like which which we should which you know we should take account of. And I think moving forward, the ability to repress like the 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 street demonstrations should not be under underestimated. Like the state has immense resources at its capacity. I don't think that we're going to continue to see people chanting, you know, down with the Communist Party in the streets regularly. Um, so I, I think that they'll be able to at least push that down a little bit and maybe with some concessions, people will be satisfied. You know, the the guy who just wants to be able to go to the movie, like next year this time, there's a good chance he will just be able to go to the movies. To, to kind of continue with my labor-centric perspective, though, I think it's going to be harder for, for workers. Uh, I think it's going to be harder for them to repress that. As long as the closed-loop management systems are in effect and lockdowns are happening, I mean, it just puts insane demands on these workers and – there were revolts against it when it first happened in Shanghai back in April, uh, and I think that those will continue to exist. Um, but I think we'll probably see this kind of reversion to what's existed for the last uh, couple decades, which is lots of you know small scale, somewhat manageable and localized protests. The question is like, does this kind of open up? Um, the possibility of politicization, which we have not really seen since 1989, um, in, in a in a robust way at least. And so, does this kind of open up some of those possibilities so those local protests can begin to to speak to each other with some sort of common language um, and and cohere some kind of political force that's harder for the state to tame? Um, we'll see. Yeah, and I guess and I guess the the other sort of X factor here is like. Can 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 the CCP get the growth rate above like five percent? No, but and, yeah, yeah, that, like, that and, like, that, like that's no. like yeah. I I I don't I don't know how they do it. Like that, uh, I don't know. Like I I I short of like short of like actually just letting all of the sort of like like all 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 of the sort of like slack and excess capacity just get like you know just just like intentionally tanking the entire economy and just like running all of these sort of unprofitable businesses into the ground. Like yeah, I don't I don't see how they do that. And that does seem to me like, you know, to be a kind of like the the the, the sort of like looming horizon over. I mean, this and this is really true of everyone, like the, 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 the sort of looming horizon over like every government in the world has been that the growth rate has been collapsing for like the last 40 years. And yeah. China was, you know, and China, the Chinese economy was like the last thing that was really driving it. And that's like not 
really true anymore. It's it's a disaster. I mean, and then even even without COVID, it was sort of like not going great. I mean, it wasn't yeah. like you know. I mean, it, it hadn't reached like it, it, it hadn't like reached like you know like recession or it hadn't really reached like sort of post-industrialized country levels of like here's your two percent growth every year, be happy with it. But like, I don't know. Yeah, but but the growth, I mean, this is maybe like another whole conversation, but like the growth has become less effective, right? It's yeah, this, yeah. It's this like investment-led growth. It's there. There's massive growth in debt and they can, you know, build another bridge, build another airport, build. I mean, they're not building the apartment blocks as much anymore, but they, they do that. They can prop up the growth a little bit, right? But like the the fundamental problem that they've been unable to address is like increasing domestic consumption, yeah. having a more equitable model of growth. And the reason that they can't do that is fundamentally a political problem. Like they can't figure out a way to give working class people more money and to give them some social protections. Um, and like until they resolve that political problem, like I just don't see them being able to deal with with that economic problem. So that means you are gonna continue to have this kind of ongoing forms of stagnation. Zero COVID really hurts it a lot more. Of course, the yeah. geopolitical conflict with the U.S. And, and Biden, you know, trying to economically kneecap them, like that doesn't help. And then the demographics of, you know, like all of these things are, are making, making their lives much more difficult. And so one way to interpret what's happened um, under, under zero COVID is the expansion of a massive and terrifying surveillance state that will allow them to weather whatever political storms are coming in the future. Yeah, and I guess I don't know. We'll 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 we'll, we'll see we'll see whether that works for them. I am somewhat skeptical <laughs> in that like I don't know, like good luck. Uh, actually terrible luck. I hope it goes badly for them. The but, worst of luck. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> yeah, so Eli, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, and okay, where where can people find you and find the stuff that you do? Uh, well, I'm on Twitter uh, as long as it's still there, um, Eli D Friedman, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm on the internet. Uh, <laughs> it's yeah, I don't that's that's the main place. Come if you're in Ithaca, come on by. All right, uh, yeah, this this has been it could happen here. Drag every government into perpetual and terminal crisis until it stops existing. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. 
Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.